Edition of the horse's mouth. You're in the horse's mouth, and my name is John Teague. Well, today I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Simon Mulvaney. Now, Simon Mulvaney is, um, well, he, he's the guy behind. I don't know if you know of this movement, but if you don't, you should go to. Uh, there's a website called Be the Cure. Um, which is the website for Save the Bees. Now, um, maybe you won't need to go there after you finish the podcast with Simon because you'll know a, a shitload about bees if, you're, um, if you don't really know anything about bees. Uh, bees are an absolutely fascinating, unbelievable part of our ecosystem that really without it, um, you know, this might sound weird to you if you don't know anything about bees, but... Basically, um, life as we know it would collapse without them. And Simon has dedicated his life to saving the bees and protecting them and, and helping our, um, you know, culture, culture uh, you know, like flora and fauna and, 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 and building a strong environment for bees to thrive. Um, and if bees are thriving, then really we're thriving. And, and Simon's passion for, for what he's into and his journey and, and it, it's kind of, you know, connected to a higher... I'm not going to elaborate on too much. I don't want to get in there. But, you know, Simon's a really connected person. And I, I just had a great time. I, today I got on the ferry and I went over to where he lives and it was just a good day, you know. I hadn't been on the ferry in ages and... It's just nice to be out. You know, the sun was shining. We're out of winter. It was just, it was good. It was a good day. I really enjoyed um, talking to Simon. So I hope you enjoy our chat. Um, I won't bang on anymore because it's 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 it's, it's a good podcast, and I really um, I'll let you go on that journey. Uh, for me, I'm I'm the kind of guy that like I love to go and see a movie that I know nothing about. If if this is if you're drawing putting down what I'm picking up what I'm putting putting if you're picking up what I'm putting down um, because I love to go on that ride you know and and discover and be surprised um, talking about surprises my brother and his fiance are in hospital today her water's broken and they don't know if they're having a boy or a girl yet um, there's a, another surprise. Um, but I tell you, and there was another surprise. I, I was full, full of surprises tonight. Um, so I, was, I had to go down the coast um, the other day, and on the way back, I saw my mate, and uh, he was pulled over. Ramo was pulled over um, there at Spout Creek, having a swim with his family, wife and kids. It was awesome. I saw them, you know, they were just hanging there. And I, so I hooked off the road, pulled into the car park, and uh, had a chat. And you know, it was just good vibes. Um, and they were having a good time. And anyway, there was these people to the to the side um, who were, you know, hanging out, having a couple of uh, have a couple of tins. And they had one guy had a really old Holden, and one guy had a really new Holden. Like, and it was more new than new. It was, you know, a, a HSV Holden Sport special vehicle. It was like even more special than a special vehicle. It was like a, I don't know, but it looked like it was out of Batman kind of vibe. And um, Anyway, Ramo had obviously been talking to these crew, and when they said goodbye, they gave 
gave us a heads up. Hey, catch you later. And um, and and this this guy in the older Holden, he got into the car with his mates and they left. And then as the guy in the new car, Ramo sort of leaned over and goes, Hey, mate, give it a squirt, would you? And the guy sort of went, Yeah, just you know. And I brushed it. I didn't think, you know that people were still doing that kind of shit today. I grew up with burnouts. I love burnouts. Um, you're probably turning off right now, but I, I like. there's nothing like a fucking really good burnout, you know? Uh, I know it's not the best thing for the environment, but it just it brings me back to an older Australian culture that, that we are... Um, that we don't see much of anymore, you know. Uh, and anyway, anyway, I turned back around. I was talking to, to Ramo and, um, and then... You know, I'd forgotten about that guy. And then Ramo just gives me a little elbow and we look between my car and his car and the guys are sitting on the road looking back, trying to get our attention. <laughs> he has his missus in the passenger seat. And when we both look up, he just fucking, he just gives it, gives it to it. Must have hit the brake, accelerate at the same time. Just did it perfectly and just got the wheels spinning. And I was like, oh my God, we are on here. And then he just kept it, kept going. And then it just started smoking. It was like summer nuts, eat your heart out. He's just like, smoke was bellowing out and then he's taking his foot off the clutch and he's just done this perfect snake down the road. And I, I don't know what came, the kid in me was just like, yeah, I don't know. you know, I was like, Awesome! It was such a gift, and then the poor dude nearly overcorrected and nearly uh, went off the road, but he didn't. Pulled it back, thank thankfully, and no doubt his missus was in the uh, passenger seat screaming at him, and uh, I was screaming on the side of the road like a little girl. Um, and that was uh, that restored my faith a little bit in um, the Aussie bogan. I'd like to say humanity, but um, you know, I just love at the core the boys giving it a bit of a, uh, you know, turn it on, turn it on, just giving it a bit of a show. Um, anyway, that got the heart going and um, restored my faith in humanity. Thank you, whoever you are, Random Holden, uh, HSV driver out there, for lighting it up for no apparent reason for the boys. Um, anyway, that's a real rant. I hope you're well out there in the world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon and um, I'll see you on the other side. Okay. You yeah. think this is, is interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. Hi, this is David Bowie. Pretty things are going to hell. Hello, So as a kid, I remember the skaters and this creature, I couldn't work out why this creature would have a jewel on its, um, on its head. And um, last week it was fascinating for me because... I haven't seen cicadas in Victoria so much um, for the last, I don't know, decade nearly. But when I got to New South Wales to visit the beekeepers this week, I was visiting a few beekeepers um, um, a year on after the bushfires um, because I did a fundraiser for them. But um, there were different coloured cicadas when I was there. So there was um, there was a, a really black one with red eyes and then I picked up a green one. Then there was a golden one. A, well, well, a black one with red eyes? Yes. Like full badass. Badass. Like, and and uh, there was so much beauty within these cicadas, the patterns off them. And immediately my curious mind was, I wonder if they mate with each other um, as a species or how can they be so different but so the same? And then you know, my mind went wandering to us as a species and obviously there's, there's different looking 
humans, but we interbreed. Um, so that was my big question, whether these things interbreed or not. And so I, you know, spent the next couple of you know, hours researching that and how I've sort of run Save the Bees. If I become super curious with, with something, a subject I don't understand, I consider the public will probably join me on that ride. And so I went to um, entomologist groups and things and, and um, you know, saw the, the talk about cicadas and then I'd found this script um, from the museum that explained that they actually uh, do not interbreed at all and they're one of the few species that don't and they've got... They're the, purists. They're purists, but they the other thing they do, they've got a specific mating call that the male will only put out for its own species and um, and... Another funny story that happened when I was there was the beekeeper, um, Sven from Amadropani I was visiting, he said he had to wear earplugs when he be- did his beekeeping. That's how hardcore the noise was. And I've done a few videos from out there and people have been writing, we can't hear you because the cicadas are too loud. Um, and then someone else sort of commented under the post that they actually... Um, they, they they make that loud noise so birds can't attack them. So that's another reason why it's so piercing and loud. But it's it seriously hurts your ears going through some of these forests. I don't know how many of these forests are actually going to be left, but I was lucky that um, I was in a pristine one. But as a kid, I only saw the sort of green cicadas. But to see five different colours all in the one spot. Um, and then the other fascinating thing about cicadas is they use prime numbers for when they come out of the ground. So um, that is, I don't know, using the Fibonacci sequence. So it's completely, completely random. And so the reason they've evolved in that way is um, so their predators can't predict when they're going to come out of the ground because if their predators did predict it, they would wipe them out. What are their predators, birds? Um, wasps, birds, um, and, and so they're actually extremely vulnerable and, and most of their lives, I think, so in some cases they're 13 years, in some cases they're seven years. That's they're, how old they grow? No, that's how long they're under the ground for. And, and then it's, so they're only out of the ground, I think, for a couple of months max. Um, to breed but yeah birds seem to be their predator and I guess um, I guess obviously we are like these ones that I'm getting that, that just look so pretty um, they're um, living off eucalypt plants so if we're taking out the eucalypts obviously they're going to struggle in the future so when I, I was a kid I remember we had cicadas. We had this oak tree at the bottom of the garden that was huge and they were, like you were saying, ear-piercingly loud. But it was in the summertime and I don't think I ever saw one, I don't really remember seeing one alive, but I remember at different times as a kid going down and the tree would be covered in the the shells. Yeah. They just stuck to the tree like it was really, really... Yeah, well, I mean, as a kid, you're just blown away by these little, what are these creatures? You know that, yeah. Yeah, and I, I haven't researched how deep underground they go, but one of the comments under the post was they've found um, them in, in nearly exactly the same way they are now that are 400 million year old fossils in Sydney. So, um, you know, they, 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 they go back a they're long... They're ancient. They're ancient. 
And then you look at, you know, I, I see it with the honeybee about how miraculous and clever they are and, um, and over years and years of evolution. And I'm sure there's sort of that wisdom amongst these other creatures as well. So you're really intrigued by the cicada and you've come a full loop on that one with your recent trip to New South Wales. But uh, so when did the fast, like, and Sarah, I, I know you were a park ranger as well. Were you a ranger before you were interested in bee life or has bee life been something that you've always been um, I spend a lot of my time teaching kids now about bees and um, I've had a, um, you know, I've got my own child who's 11 now, but there's a, another girl, Olive, who, who is two that has lived with me here for the last couple of years and we've been watching a few TV shows for kids and there's bees all over them. So I think um, it's it's something that the whole hu- humanity shares is this fascinating fascination with bees and particularly honeybees. No, but I think that that's definitely come, I reckon, in the last while it's become more in vogue, maybe since you're talking about the, the tap one. Oh, the flow hive. The flow hive, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it has. Well, the flow hive, um, that's a good example of, uh, I think they've sold over 60,000 prototypes of that or, or, or flow hives in the world. And um, they tried to raise, I think, 17,000 and, and raised 23 million. So um, in their crowdfunding. So, um, yeah, that, that actually catapulted it, the, the importance of bees. But I think the are, other... Are they a good hive in your mind? Um, I, like, I actually wrote a really critical article about the flow hive to begin with. Um, in Victoria, I find that sometimes it takes them a while to accept the plastic. And like for me as a purist, I thought, well, we've got perfect honeycomb that they produce themselves. Why do we really need to interfere with what they're doing? Um, and then Cedar Anderson actually called me and said, come up and, and suss it out because I'd written an article that they don't work very well. And then I went to visit him and the whole point of, with the flow hive was so you're not going to actually damage the bees or interfere with them too much while you're taking the honey out. Anyway, so I got to his place and um, it was, um, you know, near Byron Bay and it was, you know, the most beautiful spot. And it was it was nearly like um, being being in a, a movie with how um, smooth everything went but he showed me the hive and how it worked and started filling up jars and the bees didn't even notice us being there so we didn't have to wear suits or anything and um and he cracked this hive and in front of my eyes it was like um you know filled up 30 jars of honey and then like the, the really amazing thing was I could sort of see how much it would have taken to imagine this to actually getting it to a situation that it was like watching magic to think this guy's invented a system that can you know you can crack and fill up your own jars without interfering with the bees so in terms of engineering I was you know I'm in awe of his achievements um, but um, in terms of me using them I think if you're going to have one hive in your backyard it, it could be really useful to, to have but for me doing beekeeping where I've maybe got 
you know, 60 or 70 hives, I find it um, a bit more time consuming. Sometimes, particularly we get the tea tree honey here, which is similar to the Manuka honey or a type of Leplospernum, and it's like jelly when it comes out. And so sometimes I crack the hive from a flow hive and it takes me an hour and a half for it to drain out. Whereas um, if you had a eucalyptus honey, it, it would, you know, it's a lot runnier and it wouldn't take long at all. But you can get around that by trying to empty it on, you know, a 40 degree day or 30 degree, you know, really hot day. So you can really specifically tell what the bees from each hive are feeding on. Yeah, well, I, like that's that's what will happen to you as a beekeeper. You think you're getting into keeping bees, but all of a sudden you just become fascinated in, and and you're looking out the windows, looking at the different plants, and and working out when they flower. And it, it's interesting talking to some of the really old beekeepers because they're explaining to me like, look, a yellow box used to flower at the end of summer, whereas now it's flowering in winter. And it's no point for us to have the yellow box flowering in winter because um, the bees, it's too cold for the bees to go and forage on, you get shorter days, and so we're missing out on a honey flow. Whereas here, um, I can semi do it by clockwork when the flowers are going to come out, and um, and it's I'm on the southern end of the Mornington Peninsula in Blairgowrie, and it's we're absolutely spoilt with nectar flows. It's just like one thing after another. So I don't have to move hives around or anything to, or feed bees here. I've never had to feed bees either. So that, and, and that's the way I think it should be for bees. Like a, I think they give us an example of how healthy an environment is by being able to leave them alone and, and watch them thrive. Um, so, so with... Um, I, I re- bees and is it frogs are really the warning signals of our environment is this am i wrong no you're absolutely right yeah Yeah, well the people like to say are they the canary in the coal mine situation and um yeah both of those species aren't going to be able to live on monoculture crops and um that's what we're seeing where the collapse everyone's heard of bees collapsing but they're really collapsing on those big monoculture crops where... What does that mean, the monoculture? Oh, so monoculture is only mono, one plant. So um, quite often you've got these crops in Australia, like wheat's an example, where you're only growing wheat for hundreds of kilometres. And then um, canola is another example. And um, unfortunately, that's how we grow a lot of our food now that you'll see at the supermarket um, the almond industry is totally reliant on honeybees, um, but they're, they're planted in such a way like the bee, I, I don't know if it's a, we've got the second biggest almond crop in the world, California I think has got the biggest. And um, This is because almond milk's in vogue? It's probably got a bit to do with that, yeah. So, you know, these vegans think they're doing a great thing by having almond milk, but a lot of bees are suffering as a result of that demand. And, um, and so that's, I, I, I'm not really a supporter of that monoculture farming, um, system, but uh, yeah. And I, I, my, my view on the topic is if you can't get a colony to survive out there all year, well, you're probably doing something wrong. So that goes back to, um, is your, you know, area you're in thriving or not, well, if you have to move your hive from one place to another, it's probably an example of it not doing well. So you're saying that's a broken ecosystem kind of 
Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's a bro- broken ecosystem. It's also a sign, though, that I have had beekeepers here that I've sold bees to um, that have lost their colonies. And I've there was one guy who, quite a wealthy guy in Portsea, and um, he lost four colonies. Those were like really strong ones. I thought, how's this happened? And then I found out he was having a competition with his brother to produce more honey, and he just didn't leave him any honey over winter. And... Uh, and you know, then he wanted some more bees off me, and I said no. But um, um, yeah, so you, you, it's another saying that I've had through running. So, so hot. they were having a competition who could make the most honey, yeah, whose hives would produce the most honey. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I like, yeah, it was as if this guy had a vision that these creatures were his slaves, and um, and he just, I don't know if he. He, he made his money that way, but it was so like, how have... much can I milk out of this creature to make it worthwhile? Whereas I've learned over time, is a, and this has been a great lesson that bees have taught me, is, well, I have a, bees don't respond well to greed, but to, to the extent that it's like taking blood. If I only take a, a, a little bit of honey, you know, three or four frames and I don't affect them too much, they seem to produce more honey. So it's like the less, the less you take and the more you get. And, um, and yeah, there's been people like that who have got into bees that like, they don't realize like I'll only open the hives if it's the perfect conditions. Like if I'm comfortable in a t-shirt, but other people come down for the weekend, they're like, this is the day I'm doing it. It's cold. They're, they're, um, they're interfering with bees when, you know, maybe the bees don't want to, you know, that's not a good time, but I surf a bit too. And it's sort of, you, you've got to pick the, um, the, the winds, the tides and choose the right time. And you can't, you've got to work on their schedule, not on our schedule. And I think I was, it, it, to introduce that fact to people, they, you know, some people are control freaks and, and, um, and they're the type of people that I don't like being beekeepers in a way, because it's more about witnessing and, and working with them and learning from them. Um, it's coming from a place of ego as opposed to, um, you know, like, look at what I've got. You know, I've got these bees, they're mine. And let's have, you know, as opposed to letting the bees be the dictator of the of Yeah, their- and I think it even comes from something more like they, they might have a profit and loss attitude. Like, I've just bought this spinning machine that cost me two grand and now I've, I've bought the box, I've spent, you know, 1200 bucks. Now I need to get the honey back to pay for what I've first got. And so they've got this equation going through their head the whole time. Um, but they really, particularly a young colony, needs a lot of patience. So, so you, when um, sorry to cut you off, but when 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 we were chatting the other week, and I bit my lip, but you said something about Steiner and the Steiner teaching of bees, and I, I was going to say to you, well, I, I'd been to the Gotianum in Switzerland and done the bee tour there, and just was, had my mind blown. I had no idea of the social structure of these bees and how they moved from uh, when they were young. They've serviced different jobs within the hive to the, the, the outgoing job when they were mature was to go out and get water because it's the most, stop me if I'm wrong at any of this because it was a while ago. Then they bring water back to keep the hive at a certain temperature, whether that be cooler or hotter. This is tying into what you were saying before about the temperature of opening them up and exposing them and then having to work to autocorrect the balance of temperature internally 
am I still on track? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, continue. And then, and so this whole thing, man, where they move through their life cycle, just, I was just, you know, and then I didn't realize that there was such a, a B thing, you know, that was my first, that was my first ever real sort of glimpse in. And I've slowly but surely been learning more and, you know, following you and hearing. It's just, I'm like, I love this. So anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, well um, yeah, Rudolf Steiner, or I, I read his lectures on bees or I, I tried to. It's like poetry. So it's really that the writing back in those days has, has so much depth within it. It's, um, it's Especially really, him. Yeah, exactly. And and his his knowledge. But he, he likened the bees to the human body and, and found real connections. And I guess one of those connections is the same core temperature that we have, um, is the, the, um, the beehive. And then, um, he also, I think, um, likened the, the queen bee to our own, the think process, thought process that would do. So he explained that, um, when a queen bee, when the hive swarms that's sort of like another head entering a body and you can't exist with two heads so that's why the swarm will not want to go back into the hive it originally comes comes from while it's got two queens but what he really did was he he explained that uh, well he, i think he he explained the bees themselves like our blood running through through the system and and if you watch the when i you know watch my bees outside flying back and forth um they actually you, you can see that they're going out to the world bringing back nutrients like our own blood would be doing through our body and so it, it, looking at um steiner's way of looking at explaining it is really beautiful another thing he explains is that nearly every other insect gets to mate but in the um, beehive it's only the queen bee and the drone bees that mate and so the majority of the bees in there the worker bees they never get to to mate and then he said um he he question what's the difference between a worker and a drone oh so a drone is a male bee uh-huh. Um, and um, and so there's three bees in a hive. There's the queen bee, the worker bee, and the drone bee. And when your hive's doing really well in, um, you know, going into spring and into summer, the hive will produce drones, and their primary purpose is to mate with the queen bee. Um, whereas um, the worker bees, they... Um, they don't have any reproductive organs. Um, but no, so no, this another is, question. Sorry to cut you off yeah. once more. But they so they can predetermine whether they're going to make a drone or a worker bee. The queen bee does. She yeah. can determine. Yeah. What she's going to have. Well, she's like, we'll send out a fertilized egg or an unfertilized egg. The unfertilized egg turns into a boy, and the fertilized eggs will turn into a worker bee. And um, she knows this. Yeah. So there's this hive mind intelligence and. Um, and so, yeah, she, she'll um, and and that's another fascinating thing. I think she'll actually do the ratio to drone bees to worker bees using that same Fibonacci sequence as well. So there's some relationship between the the drones to the workers, and the the drone bees as they originally pop out, the the the, the worker bees have to feed them, or so all the girls feed them. They're really treated extremely well. In, in a time when they could be mating with a queen bee or a virgin queen. 
but come winter they're kicked out of the hive and um and they the when the resources are low they get kicked out of the hives because um they one take up the resources but two they're not very clean the boy bees will go to the toilet inside the hive and whereas the girls will be doing all the cleaning um <laughs> oh my god it's another similarity right like so do they when they get kicked out that's sad do they die yeah so they die so it is um it's like one of the things early into save the bees days is i thought i would study philosoph- philosophers that like rudolf steiner and what they bees had taught them and stand on the this the the giants of these philosophers but nikola tesla is another one that did a lot of studying into bees and on that topic he said that eventually the human race will evolve to the perfect state of the beehive where women will surpass all obstacles and start running the world. And then with all that Me Too stuff and stuff happening, I've got God, Rudolph's, um, uh, Tesla's predictions are sort of happening. Um, and, yeah, so... I, There's lots of girls out there just giving fist pumps right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is a real feminine energy. Yeah. And um, the other thing, when I first started, I, I, I noticed that the the bulk of the information on bees was coming from men. And um, I had a, another guy that I started beekeeping with was quite rough with the bees. And um, every hive we'd, we'd work on together, he'd rustle them up, they'd want to sting. And then I started doing it myself without him and I realised there was ways of doing it calmly and methodically. And then I ended up, um, there's a few people who have volunteered over the years, one girl called Emily that helped out. And I was watching how she did it really sort of um, slowly. She never wore a suit um, when she kept no gloves or anything and they really need that tenderness yeah. and um, and so yeah it's, it's been great it's been a real revolution in beekeeping now and I think um, I was talking to Cedar Anderson of Flow Hive and I think he said more Flow Hives are being sold to women than men so um, I think that's a really great thing yeah yeah um, but I think we we segued from uh, one of the Rudolf Steiner things that we were talking about. But the thing he said in terms of the female bees not being able to um, um, have sex, he said that their whole life had to become love and had to become sex. So what they did, they went to search for the love organs of plants and um, and so by bathing in the female um plants and the male plants they they've become the love between the male and female flowers and that's what pollination is and it was like this really beautiful way of explaining that the beehive is actually love itself because they can't they've been deprived of sex their whole life had to become love so um yeah that's that so for me who when i found bees i i that feeling really came to me i i'd done a few other things in my life i'd done pearl diving and i'd done um where where um in in i, I learned in broom but did, did you really of, yeah so come on you did some pearl diving in broom well i just I did my course there and did most of it off x ex, mouth and is it true that this is that people get pearls inserted into their cocks when it is really true that. yeah no, in fact i had this like friend his name was khan that i did my course with and he was a pretty radical traveler um and 
we we get we, we go out in the boat only oh, well, there, I think there was only one girl on the boat and eight guys and sometimes we'd find these tiny pearls while we were working and he actually got a scalpel out one night and started you know sewing them into his penis he already had one there or this was he was just no, like I've got to no, have these no, ones no he's like he, we, we, someone pulled out a pearling book with all these pictures of these guys penises with pearls inserted within the skin of them yeah um and um and he thought he'd he'd replicate that and i i, I think he was using fishing line to try to sew it together oh my God. and i just thought it was you know pretty disgusting and and sad and i think we got the boat got off the boat after he'd done it in port headland and he had like blood going through his pants and i thought you know any any girl that would see him would be disgusted at his antics but the girls at the pub were really Did it heal? intrigued. I think it must have healed over time. I don't know how 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 long it took it took him to get back into action, but um, he, yeah, he he was a fascinating guy, and he gave it he gave it a go. So it's definitely a true story that that's what they used to do, and um, and I've only seen it successfully done in the books and the pictures. Yeah, um, but that was. Um, yeah, we would... Um, you see some big sharks doing that? Um, I saw a turtle that had been bitten by a shark while I was diving. Um, and we, when we did our course, they warned us that um, every, it had the highest casualty rate out of any job in Australia, I think. Um, and, yeah, they, the, the year before I did it, two guys um, on the farms, just they, they just found the gear on the beach. They never found any any wetsuits or anything and um I don't, I don't know they explain that tiger sharks are renowned for for finishing people completely um the other this story, is where you were working um well broom was these attacks but we were off exmouth which, which there's a lot of tiger shark one area we went i actually um had been there before for looking for sea cucumbers with an indigenous company and um and at that area we just put a we put a rope out with a hook that night with um a fish that we speared fish and we ended up there were tiger sharks everywhere it took like it was quite amazing because there was a place called steep point which is completely um um it felt like being at the front beach here it was like the bay really sheltered and um i didn't think there'd be any sharks there but there were, there was massive <laughs> sharks everywhere so we had to dive that as well but for some reason it didn't seem like the sharks would even come near us when we were um, on the air. But when I free dive, they would come quite close. Isn't that, why, what is that weird? Yeah, it, it, I think it would the, 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 maybe the sound of the boat too or, or the bubbles, but... Um, so when you went air, was there a ho- were you going up yeah, close to the boat? Yeah, we were on hooker line. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, they, the best diver, because we'd dive with about 12 other guys and um the guy on the outside had and we get paid five bucks a shell that we'd get pick up and on a good day you might get i might get a hundred shells but the best guy he might get 300 shells and there was this guy that they um got out that was actually a skipper but he had um drug issues throughout his life and they would had a deal with the asylum or the rehab place that he could work on the boats um for the season but he had like 132 personalities through his head so every day he'd be a different type of person but he was actually had the skipper license for would the he change to, his name um 
he would just talk differently right. and we'd laugh constantly and um and he was the best diver by far if, if for some reason he would get double everyone else every time he went down isn't and, that amazing that someone can have so many personalities and yet still know what their job is to do each day within the personality yeah yeah and um and he was he he had so much depth to um how he would think and there was one day um that um a i saw a gropus go past me quite a big one and then we came up and he he asked me he goes did that groper hassle you and i said no and um he goes it's been hassling me and i don't want to go in and then we did one more dive and i watched and this groper goes past all of us but it just gets him and starts chewing at his leg and um so he he got up and um and said i'm not going down while we're we're at this spot so they gave me the his spot which is a better spot and you know the thing came up to me but didn't attack me at all and then so what's a groper oh it's a big fish uh, like queensland um groper and in fact when we did our course they explained these stories of the early days of pearl diving where the guy no one wanted the outside rope because there was these stories of guys going over ledges and just disappearing and they, they i've seen these pictures of these gropers you could probably google it um and uh, they were bigger than cars and I've seen these, you know, huge, you know, three-person-sized gropers. Um, and they take, one take about, a human hole. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the, the, that were the old folklore stories. And, um, and yeah, so you're pretty vulnerable, like, when you're... And, and we're under, underwater from sun up to sundown. And that we worked off not the paddy um tables but we'd work off these u.s diver tables so that meant that like a guy next to me he had one of those computers dive computers and the alarm would be going off after our second dive saying we've been under too long um so they try to keep you down apparently if they kept you down longer then your body wouldn't readjust when you came up and so um they'd ring a bell and we'd all have to go in the water at the same time to make sure that we could do you know the eight hours or whatever 10 hours underwater but um and so with the, that story with the groper I, I i get the the line and i um i go on it and then um Muzz wouldn't wouldn't um go back to at this spot that we were diving at and him and the the guy driving the boat had a, a big fight about um, him not working because he's getting less shells and the boat makes less money. And so he just didn't pick up any shells for a couple of days. And so the the boat driver and him, he, they, they, he was teasing the um, I was saying, you haven't earned any money, you know, all the other guys are earning money and you're not. And then um, he pulls out these Caribbean cowrie shells in his hands and they, they're worth about five grand each. And instead of looking for the pearl shells that we were meant to be looking for, that end up going to a farm, he was picking up these really rare shells and he'd made himself like 20 grand in two dives. And, um, and then, you know, then a rule got put out on the boat, which is probably a rule anyway, that we can only take the, um, to the pearl shells. But if you did see something sort of miraculous down there, generally, um, you know, the, the, the guys would take a few. Um, but to the extent that we had to do police checks before working on these boats, because a couple of wise divers, um, GPSed 
um, the area where we we would bank the pearl shells and where they would inseminate the pearl shells. And apparently it's a bit like diamonds. If they released all the diamonds at once, diamonds would be not worth much because there's these huge mines just full of them. There was this huge bank of pearls that these couple of guys managed to go and collect and it had an, they, they got so many that apparently it could bottom the whole pearl price down. Like with, oil. Yeah, you know they they resi- you know hold off on well they hold off on yeah, yeah. so yeah they definitely Paspali and all the big pearl companies they they definitely hold off on it and um, and so that was um, they were pretty strict in terms of you know what you could collect but every now and again we you see a really big old ugly shell and you'd open it up and and one day I did open one up and it had a decent size pearl in there and so have you still got any. I've just got one that I gave to my mum, and I'll show you a, a couple of shells later that um, that I collected that are pretty beautiful. How amazing! Did you ever hear of any um, like people like you hear of people who are, you know spend a lot of time, years and years, in search of shipwrecks? I did, uh, I, and um, treasures. Yeah, there was one guy. Um, it was a place called Warra Station, um, which is that's just north of Ningaloo Reef. That yeah, I stayed out there and. Um, I used to base uh, for months. I'd stay out there actually, um, and just sort of surf and live off crayfish and fish. And so, uh, did you surf Nalu and yeah, bluff? And the bluff, yeah. But I, I, I've had a better time further north. I because I was into my diving and my um, fishing just as much as my surfing, and those joints sort of got a little bit crowded. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so yeah, that that was. Um, really good but um what was i just talking about then again um oh the treasures oh yeah treasures yeah so there was um a guy an australian that had been in the philippines and he was a treasure hunter and he was he showed me all photos of these treasures that had been collecting over the years and um and he he was explaining that he to, to get in and out of there with the treasure he'd been shot at by you know the army people and you know, I think he was hiding out actually when he was over there. So, um, and I've actually found found um, a, a shipwreck down here, which was um, pretty amazing. Un- unknown about? Well, I think it's known about. I'm not sure. Like, I think other people would have seen it. Um, but one day there was um, a guy looking for a shipwreck from. I don't know whether it's from National Geographic or something, but he was actually very rude <laughs> to me on the way in there, and I saw him walk right past it and missed it and and I thought I'm not going to tell you where it is um, and then you still um, in that area find porcelain and stuff that washes up on the beach I love all that there's a I, I know of a guy in Port Campbell that had found a few wrecks and the FBI ended up getting onto him on oh, FBI the uh, Australian Federal Police and he had buried heaps on farms mm-hmm. and uh, to stop himself from going to jail he had to he, I don't mm. think he gave it all up but he gave a lot of it up and had to give them uh, coordinates to the boats. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, that's, we digress, but I love it. It's like, you know, yeah, it's yeah. an ancient and world that we're still connected to. Yeah, it was, um, that, that fascinated, the fascination in creatures was obviously, I, I got a lot up through diving and stuff. And I, when I was a kid, fishing was the thing I was into, but I got less and less into fishing. And then I was explaining when I found bees. And so that was one of the things when you're fishing, you come home with the fish and you've got the fish smell and you have to kill something. When I got into Save the Bees, um, it was 
because I knew bees were getting exterminated in the areas and I contacted all the exterminators in the Shire and I said... Purposely? I, purposely, I contacted them and said... No, 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 they were purposely getting exterminated. Yeah, well, that's... The, the people get... Like, bees quite often, when they swarm, they send the scout bees out to find a new home and ideally in the wild that would have been a cave or a hollow of a tree but because now you know we're we, we offer them walls of our houses or compost bins or or chimneys and things so um that's the jobs i was doing they'd sort of um i guess um move into somewhere where they interfered with what you know humans are doing and and they have to be moved and um Sometimes, you know, there's, there's no choice for a house owner but to get them removed. Because um, they'll drop in under your eaves. And well, it's not that it's, it's pretty, they're pretty good at finding a home. So they usually want to be within a, within a cavity itself. So if there's a hole within um, weatherboards, they'll sneak in there. Uh, the, the way of avoiding it's happening, it's having insulation. But a lot of the old homes down here never bothered with that. And so it's pretty common to get them in those situations where they, they move behind a wall of a house and then once the the queen's in there and they start making honeycomb and laying eggs, it's sort of like performing an operation to get them back out. It's called a cutout where we'll pull the boards off, cut the honeycomb out and and um, put them into frames and then, you know, encourage the queen in the box and then they're in the box and not in the wall anymore. Um, so that's pretty much how Save the Bees started was actually um, going to people's homes and 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 you know, rather than the exterminator doing the job, we would do the job. And um, it was I I always loved that concept of that restaurant in Melbourne called Lentil as anything, where you pay what you can afford to or you pay as you feel. And so I went out with that attitude and I said, well, you watch me, you see what I'm doing. A pest controller would have come in, they would have charged you 220 in the least, but I'm actually saving them, you know, pay me what you want. And then um, I, there was a lot of people with no money at all um, and I understood that. And um, one of those ladies actually contacted the paper and said, I've just had this amazing experience, I had bees and Simon came around, did all the work for free. And so... Um, from that, you know, that, at that time I would have had a hundred people following the, the Save the Bees page, and um, after that article, it might have got up to a thousand, and then, um, and then I sort of, it, it, you know, one of those people that um, social media has been really fortunate for, because I've been able to get a lot of information to people, and then eventually, people, I became the go-to person for whistleblowers. Um, in, in terms of the honey industry. So a lot of people were, you know, revealing to me some terrible things that had been happening. So you're like the Snowden of the bee world. Yeah, to the, to the extent <laughs> that I haven't had to move move um, countries yet, but um, I have been in court for um, about five years and I'll probably... Re- well, not just court, right? You've been a supreme. Supreme court, yeah. Yeah, the Supreme Court in Sydney. And um, Can we kind of arc through that a little bit yeah so I'll, I'll you know i'll try to hurry it up for you a little bit but one of the issues um has obviously been pesticides that I've, I've i've spoken about a lot but another issue that came up was that there was a lot of imported honey on the supermarket shelves and then um, imported so the honey was actually coming from outside inside when we've got lots of honey here 
Uh, yeah, that was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's how you know how it began was um, beekeepers were sending me pictures of this really cheap honey at the supermarket and saying how can we compete with this you know, you know i one guy from western australia said my kid the kids are other kids at school are teasing my kid my kid because apparently my honey's a rip off at ten dollars a kilo a kilo and that's not an ex you know the $10 a kilo, you know, there's probably about $80,000 worth of work in a kilo of honey that bees have done. But generally, you know, I, I say $20 a kilo is probably a fair price for honey. But this stuff coming in was like seven bucks a kilo. Um, and for a beekeeper, you, you look at it and it doesn't actually look like the same honey that we're collecting. So just visually, it, it, it didn't look good. And it also didn't seem to ever, ever crystallize. And you've probably all seen crystallized honey um, that's what it should do after you know some honey like eucalyptus might take a couple of months but um the, when it goes hard on the edges yeah 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 so um we're looking at some now mm. that's crystallized and, and that's only a, a month old and that that is really a good sign that it's authentic if it does crystallize and in europe they tend to only eat crystallized honey they don't have it runny like we do um so it's probably it's only when it's fresh that it's got that runny feel to it so this stuff would stay on the shelves for a long time this imported stuff and cheap stuff so i what was more shocking is i decided to investigate where this honey was coming from because it wasn't on the label itself and um i actually thought well if i have a crack of making it as a you know commercial beekeeper I will, there would no way I could enter into that sphere if I was going to be competing with this imported stuff. Um, and then I thought, if I'm suffering that, like everyone in Australia must be suffering that. And then it came down to thinking, well, there's these diseases out there. Um, one of them's American fowl brood, and you can catch that from other honey. And so we're bringing in this honey. I thought, well, how do we know it hasn't got American fowl brood in it? So um, this is a really worthy point. A worthy point. So the so I I um, and sorry and just to um, stress the importance of that. We are the only um, country that doesn't have a fouled system. Is this correct? Um, no, well, it, it is correct in one regard because um, we're the only country on on the continent that doesn't have a varroa mite. And varroa mite is a mite that's been decimating beekeepers all around the world. But the, the, the worst thing about varroa mite is you have to treat your bees with a low-dose insecticide that doesn't kill the bees but kills the mite. So it contaminates the wax and the honey. So, so, it's, so it's like chemo for bees? Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I haven't thought of it in that way, but it is like that. And um, my my mates have been and, and, and done mite treatments in New Zealand or um, in Europe say it's not nice. It's a terrible um, what you put the bees through when you're treating them. And now there's this huge movement overseas that we stuffed up. We should have never been treating them. We've got to um, allow the bees to get their strength and genetics to get over the mite. And um, mm. uh, one lady in Germany was explaining to me that her um, the feral colonies are doing really well um, when they do removals and stuff. It's the ones that are kept in apiaries close to each other in big numbers that that's where the issue lies. 
And then um, there's places like Africa, the bees seem to be coping with varroa mite. Um, so with, with more natural systems. So it's really our sort of, it's like, some some commercial beekeepers keep bees in the same way as you know pigs are kept in factory farms like we're feeding them feeding them fake food mm -hmm. and um and in huge numbers um and so our honey is definitely the purest in the world so anyway um, sorry we digress yeah, no, but so, yeah but it's a good point to add in here because at the time new zealand beekeepers were getting 12 dollars a kilo and our beekeepers were getting three dollars 50 a kilo but our honey's better than theirs so i um that that was sort of disappointing is it, sorry is that right because quite often um new zealand honey is advertised here as being like a superior honey yeah, well, have you seen not, that? Yeah, it, it, it absolutely isn't, and um, and it's um, they're, they're 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 the best marketers in the world, I suppose. They, didn't they do it with wool as well with the merino um, wool? And there's actually yeah, we can talk forever, but there's um, <laughs> there's a um, there's a court case at the moment going on between whether we're allowed to use the word manuka or not, seeing though they're from the same flower. But manuka originally being a Maori word, um, they've gone to the appropriate courts or whatever, and it's that argument about champagne. Um, and I think at, at this stage, it, you know, it looks like it's going to be a hard, hard fight for the Australian um, Australia to maintain that name, manuka. Well, if we have a manuka plant, what do we call it scientifically? Well, it's a leptospermum plant and, and we've got 80 different varieties of the plant and our honey is a lot stronger than the New Zealand variety and a lot higher quality. Mm. And um, like I'm showing you a Manuka honey now and it's got Manuka on the label, but it's also got Medi jelly. And so um, there's going to, I think that there should be more energy into marketing Australian species of honey. But the, the other thing, it's got this real novelty Manuka, but Manuka's real benefit is topically um, and it's not um, it, to, to digest as such. If you digest it, it's just sort of like having any other honey. Um, whereas the eucalypt honey... <laughs> so my mind goes right because I don't have much honey being a diabetic because it spikes my sugars a bit too much. But if, say, I'm down a little bit in the morning, I wake up my sugars a little low, I get my special honey out and I put a bit in my coffee and I always think if I get the really, really premium shit that it's going to do some internal healing. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, you're, you're right with um, certain honeys um, like maybe eucalyptus, but there's different ratios of sugars in honeys or carbohydrates um, fructose and um, and depending on the levels, it's I think actually some diabetes diabetics are using honey in a positive way, huh. and so it's it's actually can be really beneficial beneficial for diabetics. And huh. then um, I did read yeah. Anyway, we'll keep we'll yeah. So we're on a track here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, our honey's the best in the world. We're not paying getting paid fairly for it. The commercial beekeepers, as far as I'm concerned, are getting absolutely ripped off. Um, and then I, I sort of assumed it would be just some random company that was importing the honey, but then it, it ended up being a company that I grew up with, which was Capilano um, Honey. They've now changed their name to Hive and Wellness, but um, have they really? Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the whole the whole thing was quite fascinating how it all began, um, and I remember um, I just 
I, I, I just thought it was terrible. The stuff's coming in on one hand too, that it's how, how many people are deciding not to be commercial beekeepers because they have to compete with this stuff. And, um, and I didn't think it was fair to the consumer. And one of my beefs was if you read the packaging, it, it says it's packed in Australia, but it, it doesn't tell you what country it comes from. But if I, if I've got a t-shirt, it tells me whether t-shirts from China mm-hmm. or from India or wherever it is. So how have we got this system where our food isn't, um, labeled with the country of origin on it? And I know for a fact that if, if it had China on the label, not many people would buy it. They'd, they'd be buying the Australian honey. Um, so I, I, I guess I became very good at communicating that. And the first one was um, in regards to the disease and the disease threat. And it was probably my first post that went really viral. Um, and um, it, I think it got to up to you know 1.2 million views and and lots of comments before was um, this, did that well, blow your brain but, but yeah and and then under the post everyone's like what should i do what should i do and i said give me your address um off your apiary and where you're selling a honey and i'll put it on a google map and then people can buy a few directly so simultaneously as to releasing the this article on the back end i was creating a honey map so people could buy a direct of beekeepers and that honey maps on the website be the cure.com and it's been i don't know hit on over a million times now and so um that that was really good to be able to promote honey at the same time as being critical of the corporation that was importing the honey. Um, so um, I, I was I was extre- extremely effective um, at getting the word word out, and that that was at a time where algorithms were. Um, weren't interfering with things as such so anything worthy of people wanting to hear and see would get shared a lot and um and that included overseas so um yeah some of these articles that i wrote um because the whole world had this issue with chinese honey um coming in and lowering their prices um and the flow-on effect of that was you're not going to getting enough bee getting as many bees doing the pollination and then your whole food systems will break down because this stuff was entering the market and i say stuff because um since then um a lot of testing's been done on this honey and um some of the testing according to the labs um says that it, it's not honey and it was beetroot syrup and and rice syrup and and other things and so um it, it nearly became a race to the bot- bottom i guess for some of these big importing companies where um competition drove less and less quality out there so i thought it was only fair that i put the microscope on that um and so um i think it, it, it yeah the ACCC ended up doing a big report on it and the ACCC came up with this really weird conclusion that there's no way of telling whether honey is honey or not that ended up not helping anyone but according to the labs i've spoken to um and i'm not talking about any specific brands here but they said well we can what we can tell you is there's beetroot syrup in these certain honeys so were you um being threatened legally at this oh, point oh no so no, um, oh, like it, it took me um 
a, a little bit of a time before I um, so I had a couple of viral viral um, articles and um, what would really frustrate me was sometimes they would just get a third party's complained about your article so we're taking it down and they are really factual articles um, so I couldn't you know so I've got that um, I've had that censorship issue over something like honey and I see this entering the, the world now on social media but this has happened to me about six years ago where a really great story I put a lot of effort into would just get taken down and who had the power to get these stories taken down and then and you couldn't see who it was it was just coming oh, they out just of the, had a third party yeah, that's, um, yeah but it was obviously at that stage and I don't think they, uh, I think they'd admit it now that Capilano were asking Facebook to take down a few of the articles um, and um, and I just dove, like I dove deeper into the corporation and I worked out that they were on the stock exchange that that they'd had a sudden rise of, of um, share price an incredible one it went from two dollars to $22 in like five years or something. And um, I worked out, you know, whether it's um, a coincidence or not. I think we we know it's not. That's like Bitcoin rise. It was a Bitcoin rise. And then I mapped that for some reason their price rise had gone up a similar time as when they were importing honey. And so I just put two and two together in terms of I would go to their financial documents that they're releasing on the Financial Review and other places where they're bragging about importing honey. And I'd say, this is the company that you're buying off. And, and I, you know, I, I guess that at that time I, um, I, I would watch their, <laughs> their share price in relation to articles I was sharing. And it was it was it was going down. I remember a stockbroker contacted me at one point and said, "Every time you release an article, they go down." And that's you know I've never seen anything like that. And I said, um, you know, it was fascinating to you know it's fascinating to be able to have that effectiveness. You know, I remember one day I'd had had a post and. Uh, you know, I was up to 60,000 views. Then I got on to Instagram and said, please, everyone share this post. And I just watch it go up to 120,000 in, in a few hours. Um, and then, yeah, and then... So Does your head do cartwheels when this is going viral? Like, it's an amazing thing to be on the end of. Well, yeah, I tell you, it has been really fascinating. And I, I think if you had gone back to where I was at that point, um, it, it, at the a sense of starting save the bees is family and friends thought I'd lost my mind and I you, you would probably I, I have no doubt that I've been a really lonely person I, I was um I had my a child Oscar living at with me at the time and he's um he was only you know four four years old and his mum had had um, some issues w- with addiction so um, he, he got put into my full-time care so at a time when most of my friends are socializing and doing things I was at home studying bees but it, it's looking back it, it, it went from a really sad to happy time it was and, and the other thing that I was haunted with was um, it looked like he, Oscar, would be with me for six months and then when his mum got better that he, she would have him full time then I was going to see him every second weekend or, or something. So I had this like crisis state going on within myself um, just at the, before starting Save the Bees. And, um, and But I remember one day where all the chips were against me and I was as low as I could ever be and I was doing a bee removal from a compost bin 
and I opened, uh, I, I, I found the queen, I got her in the, the box and then I watched the bees communicate that they had a new home and there was this perfume and I realised like I should be the unhappiest that I should be in my life because I had no money or possessions or anything, but I'm the happiest I've been in my life. And so, you know, a real turning point, there was a, a lot of sort of spiritual stuff happening in the background for me at that point. Can, can I say something? This is reminding me really of like um, my octopus teacher. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you see that? I did see that. And, and um, through nature, having that communication, finding something greater on. Some meaning, some deeper meaning. And, um, and Which is what you just explained. The same, yeah, right? Yeah, well, it's the same. And, 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 um, and there was a, a mantra like, um, if you can be happy with nothing, no one can ever take anything away from you. And uh, at that point, I, I felt I had nothing. And, um, and, and yeah, so, so that was, you know, sort of interesting. The other interesting thing, I guess, that grew at that time, I was studying, you know, all the different books on on bees and, and so papers. Can I just pause for a second? Are you self-taught? Because you say, I really like, really like to write these papers and it's just like you have this thirst. Yeah, Obviously. thirst for knowledge. Yeah. And, and so I'd study, you know, people's, anything I could get my hands on in terms of bees, you know, they, they took all the books out from the library. And I guess I, I, I um, try to take the cream out of things. And my disappointment in a lot of the books I was reading was, or papers I read that the writers like like to um, include a lot of ego within the text themselves or explain things certain ways. And and at that time, my main method of getting information out is Instagram. So I've got to somehow get this amazing paper into this certain allotted word. So I, I would have to really condense the science out there to be palatable for people to read and include that with a, a palatable image and stuff. Um, and, and using that, you know, I call it an algorithm to the soul is, um, is if I, my soul's just screaming out that I absolutely love this, then other people are going to appreciate it at the same time. And then you, you really end up creating, I did a, a real bond with the, the followers and the people and the people writing in the background. And, um, and, um, I, sometimes I feel like I'm closer to a few people I've never met than, you know, my own friends and family over that period um, because that was a time when when they really got me through a really hard time. Um, and so a lot of people have been on this journey with me. In fact, you know, when I think of the 100,000 people who follow the page or the 300,000 people who signed petitions, it, it's it's more about them and I'm, I'm just a catalyst being able to, you know, speak up for, for one first bees and then and then to the supporters around that. But I remember seeing um, uh, Russell Brand, um, um, he, it was a, an interesting time for him in, in what he was putting out there, he had this true news thing and um, he put this challenge out and he said, why don't you try to make a difference in a really creative way? And then I thought, well, I know what I'll do. There's this company that's importing honey and blending it and, um, and and 
it, it, it's, it's, it hasn't got much integrity to, to be doing that. I'm going to make them change their ways. And, um, and it, it, you know, I'm going to just chip away with it. And I know if you focus on a certain idea, it's like the universe conspires for it to happen. And I think that contract, I, I, I wrote it down, I sent it out, and my, my mind was a magnet for that happening. And so, um, so when um, I got my first summons from Capilano Honey to um, that they were going, they wanted to sue me unless I took down all these articles. I um, rather than balk at it, I thought, oh, you know, you've, you, you know, I half thought you walked into this one because one, I, I assets. I didn't have many, and two, they didn't mean that much to me. This was far important fight than just me. Um, so what I did was I got the documentation and just went outside and took a photo of me and my son saying we're getting sued by Capilano Honey. And that picture itself just went unbelievably viral. And this is probably the biggest mistake I made. Um, people were writing to me in the background, can I give you money? Can I give you money and, I, and help out with the court costs? You're going to need it. And I thought, no, I'll represent myself. I won't need help. Um, I won't, like, this isn't about money. Money's and greed got us into this mess. I should, I'll be able to do it with, with nothing. Um, and, um, and eventually, you know, I'd like... So did you trust, did you have some sort of weird trust that maybe nature would support the the truth here well i sort of uh, well no because when you come into the realm of humanity <laughs> yeah. and something like the law that's so artificial um you can't expect nature to really guide you through that one um and and i definitely found that out during the court process and the procedures of court how important it was to have a lawyer um but i reckon if i did put that crowdfunding up on that day where i announced it in its purity you know maybe i would have had a budget of a million bucks to fight the court case but um i think a week after that I, i started running one and um and then I got a call from a Sydney um, senior counsel um, guy that said he was willing to take it on. And um, his name was Kieran Smark. He's done a few, quite a few high-profile case, cases. And he's um, a bit... He, I, I, I delved who, into, who owned Capilano and it was Kerry Stokes is one of the major shareholders. So he owns Channel 7 and a lot of the machinery. And it's got a lot to do with China. He owns, I think, mining machinery and other things. He's made his money in that way. Um, so anyway, the, their, their side was going to have an unlimited budget, I suppose. Um, and it was a, a law firm, Addison's, that... Um, they had decided to go with, which was the same one that Kerry Stokes usually used. Um, so um, we... Does he have a house down this way? Well, um, no, they, they're Sydney people. So oh. that was the other miraculous thing. I wasn't getting sued in Melbourne or Brisbane where Capilano is. I'm getting sued where Addison's offices are in Sydney and I found that peculiar um, as well. But I had this guy put up his hand and said, you know, he's happy to act for me. Um, and he's no, yeah, but so, but he, he actually did tell me that he was good friends with the other guy who was suing me. And I said, well, I assume you want to win, so I'm happy with that. Um, but um, 
uh, without making too many accusations. I, I didn't feel like they were doing a very good job. I don't, they hadn't written me out an affidavit. Um, at one stage, they contacted me saying the media want access to this, but we don't think it's a good idea. And that sounded weird for me because as the client, you know, it wasn't about winning or losing. It's about getting better labelling on honey and, um, and and stopping this from going on. And when they were, sorry, when they were suing, uh, the, when someone, uh, um, touch wood, haven't been sued, um, when that comes down the pipeline, it's like you've been sued for, and what were they saying? You were oh, yes. degrading us. Um, uh, there was actually um, a, a list of maybe... Like there was a list. 19 things <laughs> yeah, okay. that, that they were saying, and um, and our stocks are plummeting. Well, no, well, like, yeah, I don't know, yeah, that they, they, they never actually had the documentation to, to say how what I was doing was affecting them, you know, like obviously the argument that you might put forward is maybe people aren't buying it because it's from overseas. So, I, I think that was going to be really hard for them to. To, to win over yeah. but what I've learnt now is a tactic is to just keep you going and it's it's like attrition events eventually it's going to be too much paperwork and, and too much and and it, like there actually if you saw the amount of paperwork that I was given over time folders it, it would go up to this roof even higher than this roof it was it was fascinating how much um, megadata they collected on me as well. So every single person who commented or or said that they were all in the files. But the, one of the things that I did um, when I got my first um, sort of particulars or, or summons was I... I read through the whole appendix and, you know, you hear that and you might say on the show, if you get sued, you should read everything. And they would have never thought I was going to read anything. But I found that a lot of their shareholders actually supported um, what I was saying and some high up shareholders. And so at the back end, I started writing to the shareholders that were, um, you know, and, and, and saying, well, you know, this isn't how to deal with this. The way to deal with this is just put the country of origin on the label and be more transparent and we can all work this out. And one of the shareholders actually got through to their the CEO and he, he rang me up and we actually, he was, you know, we got along quite well on, on the phone and we actually agreed to meet in Evans Head in, um, in New South Wales um, to try to mediate things. Um, and... Um, and we we had quite a few beers that night, and uh, and we we thought we sort of had a deal. Um, the deal was the fact that I said, you know, I'm just like any magazine. I'm sure there's some some good stuff that your company's doing, like you you know, in terms of um, manuka honey. I know that you're really promoting our medicinal honeys, and let's do a story on that. And then over, over having a few beers with them, I said, one of my biggest gripes with you is you haven't come out and spoken out about insecticides. And the major insecticide that's killing bees in the world, we call neonicotinoids. It, it comes from nicotine, the, the poison. And um, it was used to be sold really commonly at the shops. Where do they get the nicotine from? The tobacco plant. No shit. Mm. So the same thing that's fucking us up, it's another mirror. Well, it is, but it's funny, like, because the paradox with that is there's also apparently some good things that nicotine can do. Um, Jack so, you up a bit. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't, um, 
Um, I I have all sorts of people contact me, but there there was someone who's contacted me recently saying that it's actually there's some health benefits to it. Um, but I, I do think every plant is probably being put on the earth for a purpose. Um, in terms of the the neonicotinoids, I, I, it's a terrible purpose. You know, you you've got this chemical that has now been banned in Europe um, for having an association with colony collapse disorder. And, um, and we're using, there's heaps of it used in Australia and it's, um, it's the, the way they use it sometimes is by spraying it on the plant or feeding it to the plant, but it's a systemic insecticide. That means it's taken up by the plant and then the plant becomes the poison. And so the pollen becomes poisonous, the nectar becomes poison, but it's, it's the same poison that you know, they probably use on termites. And so we still use it now. It's still yeah banned in Europe, but it's it's not banned here. Um, so I came up with this plan with with um, Ben McKee to say let's um, let's mutually call for a ban of of neonicotinoids. And so you're the biggest honey seller in Australia. It'd be a great story. And and um, he did some work into to doing that. Um, and they he, you know they did admit in the end that that it is damaging bees because initially one of the comments under their post was there's no proof that neonicotinoids are doing any harm whereas now it's um there's no doubt that it's being harmed but i just grappling with the fact that you're making so much money out of this creature and you're not calling for chemicals to get banned it was a really frustrating thing for me um and then um yeah, you know, so we, we, I sort of thought the court case was over. When so this is after you had beers and you've... you've yeah, you've, over beers. Mm. We, that was one part of the agreement um, we, we, that we could do mutually. And he said, well, but we can't change our labelling on the honey. And I said, well, I, I'm just going to continue to berate you about that. And then he said, well, that's not very kind. And then I said, well, um, I've got 15,000 people on a petition. That, you know, what am I going to say to them? And then I, um, and then so we we had a lengthy discussion around that. But it was interesting that I didn't hear from him. I thought I was going to hear from him the Tuesday. I just didn't hear from him for months, you know, about a month. And then I think, um, um, I think the story goes that. Um, um, or that got back to me. This might be be true or not true, but um, the board didn't know that he was visiting me. Mm. And like everyone thinks, the CEO runs the company, but the the board have a lot to do with the decisions. And I think because I done a lot of damage to their company, few of them really probably wanted blood, and they were probably annoyed that he'd actually contacted um, me in the first place. Um, so after that point. I, um, was he like our age? Yeah, he he went to a school called Halebury College, and um, and I used to I went to a school called Xavier College. So yeah. I played. Um, I, I, you know, we 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 actually knew a couple of mutual friends. He was a school umpire, <laughs> um, but um, he it, like. Like there was some really silly things that happened along the line that was silly on their part. Like there was one fine conversation I had with him and he said, "Um, do you want to, um, we thought we've got a good position here for you. We need a new gardener for the head offices. 
And I said, I said, why, why do you think I'd want to go to Brisbane and be a gardener, mate? And he goes, well, you've got a gardening business there, you know. We, and I said, mate, have you, have you seen my life? I just go out and play with bees and, you know, hang out with my son and, and I don't want to go to Brisbane and be a gardener. And he goes, I, I just have this vision of me in my big office upstairs looking at you slaving away with a shovel. I thought, you're saying this to me? And, you know, what, what are you giving me core meaning to, to continue to, you know, it, it wasn't a good way to, to rub me up anyway, saying things like that. And that just stoked the fire. Yeah, or it's like, well, there's the fire for the, the soul, and, and, and that it, it didn't need much stoking yeah. because that was the whole point um, in a way was who's really benefiting out of this hard work. Is it the bees that are benefiting or is it the beekeepers that are benefiting? And in that moment, it was like, you know, um, the guy who was benefiting was... Um, this guy in his ivory t- tower in Brisbane. But in, after meeting him, I don't know, he was probably joking at that point. He actually, I actually um, didn't mind um, talking to him and, and my true feeling was that if me and him were left to the decisions, that, the, the, you know, that we would have ended the court case easily. But it, it was probably a sign of too many um, hats on, um, plus the fact you've got a situation where the company is probably making huge, huge profits for its shareholders on the back of this blending system that they had developed in the 80s. Um, but there was another company, Beechworth, who um, it was their competitor that refused to sell imported honey and really stuck to, stuck to their morals and, um, you know, credit to them that they were able to to, because there was a really big shortage in the 80s um, as a res- result of drought. And, um, and but uh, according to Jodie Goldsworthy, she saw this imported honey available and said, there's no way I could feed it to my own children, so there's no way we can sell it. Um, but, um, yeah, so that got us to a point where I hadn't heard from Ben after going to Evans Head. Um, and then I wrote an article... Um, which similar flavour to my other articles about, but instead of choosing an enemy off as Capilano just to give us some breathing space, I chose Woolworths Home Brand Honey because that was clearly not marked. It came in, it flooded the market, and um, it, it, it was the same thing as this stuff we're looking at now, which was Capilano's Lowry Honey. It looked very similar. And um, so this article went up and, um, and this time it was millions. So, you know, it had over, you know, envisioned 23,000 shares. And, um, and I, on the back of that, I also on the petition, the petition got up to, um, you know, it's now at 270,000 people. So it was just really making making a mark. And then... So you're still in court at this stage? Still in court. So hold on. Okay, so when you say you write an article and you post it about the Woolworths, when you say... Where do you, where do you post that article? Oh, on Facebook. Okay, yeah. Doing That's, the damage. Yeah. And then I also put it on Instagram. But because you've got a that modified sharing, version. sharing mechanism, um, yeah, we can have a few more words on... And you can have links on Facebook, whereas you can't have the links on Instagram. So... Um, Facebook became more effective at all um, around around that time. Yeah. And, yeah, so, but then I got a contact 
contacted again, well, a phone call from Ben. I thought this is out of the blue. And he said, oh, um, do you reckon you could take the article down that you've just released? And this, how into it I was at that time was I knew the highest rating show on on, um, on, on TV at that point. And I would wait until there was an ad on a high rating show knowing that everyone's going to look at their fire. And I'd post to, at those times. And um, and he said, he, like a surgeon. Well, he said, um, and then he said, you know, I've been on the phone to the CEO of Woolworths this morning, and um, and if an hour because of your article or something, and I, I said, hey, is that your honey? Are you packing Woolworths honey? And he said, uh, uh, and he he couldn't answer the question, and now I realise now that they were, so it probably was coming out of all the same vat. And then that was the issue too, is I would go to a Woolworths and I'd see all these different brands on the shelves, but they're all packed from the same company. And so the consumer would be thinking that they have a choice, but it was really the same company with different labels. Um, and I don't even know if the honey varied that much. Um, so it was really um, trying to let the consumer honestly know how the whole system worked and unfortunately it, 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 I'm only sort of talking about honey here how we deserve to know the country it comes from um, but there's and, and Ben said this to me once he said 80% of the packaged goods at the supermarket are from China and um, and why why we the company have to put the name on it but no other companies have to and I said well you know, I'm not save tomato sauce or whatever. I'm save the bees, and honey's a part of that. <laughs> and so, um, so you know, it, it was very natural to go there. Plus, the the whole like I'm not pressing the button. I'm not telling you know 30 million people to read the article. It's just that the article has this rhythm in it or in this importance to it that makes people click the share button. So in terms of uh, the pioneering side of defamation that I was involved in, like if I was getting sued for what I was doing and they allowed other companies to continue to do this, the court systems would just be totally overrun. Um, so I think the whole legal system around defamation probably has to be really looked at um, too because they, they were suing me for two things, defamation and injurious falsehood. And um, I guess to explain injurious falsehood, if you went down and said this bakery is selling stuff that's no good and that bakery went out of business and they could prove it was because of what you'd done. Um, but if you could prove it was selling shit? Um, it, yeah. So that, Isn't that everything about argument. transparency? Um, like or a lack of you know that's the thing is um, is I guess my role was to try to make things as crystal clear as possible um, and um, and communicate that in a certain way my life uh, yeah like I, I, I would do things like um, if I can't write about these five things I'll just write something about how you've got a male bee on your container and that be, the female bees do all the work. And why why have you got no female people on your board at that stage? And I, I, I can just keep on going with more topics. It's like limitless and be really effective. And then they changed it to a girl on the package. So it was... Um, uh, there was it that was is really fantastic. Fasc- <laughs> it was fascinating um, um, how... Um, 
how you, we saw results, you know, like first then I was promoting like raw local honey um, and then all their brands changed to putting or, you know, a lot of them put raw on their brands. And then, yeah, I had, um, there's another honey on the supermarket that's calling itself raw now. It's called Nature Nate's um, Honey. And like looking at it, it's not raw honey. It's been heated to get into the friggin' jars. And I wrote an article about that. And then the CEO or the guy who bought that company to Australia rang me up and said, we only entered the market because of your articles and what you'd, you'd enabled us to get more space. And we're actually trying to do the right thing. And, um, and, and, you know, we want, we, we want to collaborate with you. And I said, well, you know, you've got to be really honest, you know, it's, it's clearly not, it's clearly filtered and it's clearly not raw. So you can't call yourself raw and unfiltered, but in terms of that example, there's no actual definition to go by. And now there's a new campaign from Capilano that says local honey on the thing. And so there's some people in the background very frustrated at the moment writing to me that um, how can they use that word local? And But it's probably, you know, an easy word to use. You're local to the universe, local to the planet, local to the country, local to the state, local to the town. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a real advocate for trying to be local to the town as much as you can. Mm. Um so anyway, so from from that um, from that stage, um, and that article going viral again, um, I, I think it sort of um, took the impetus away from a chance of settlement. Although we 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 did give settlement a try, and I went with um, the 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 barrister I didn't really trust because he I, I realised he was mates with Kerry Stokes as well as as the other guy. And I went up to this boardroom meeting, um, and um, and there was um, you know some of the there was a guy called Sandy Dawson, which is apparently one of the best or the highly paid barristers in Sydney, and um, and it was me and and a solicitor who who was really kind, and then Kira next to me, and we were trying to work things out, um, and they seemed to be preoccupied with another journalist who had somehow got my material and republished it and my relationship with him the guy's called Shane Dowling and um and his articles ironically when mine got pulled off the internet he sort of hybrid and rewrote my articles and shared a few of them again um his went mega viral and became the top search on Google. So he, 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 he had journalism training, so he, he was a little bit more effective than me. But I explained to them that um, I, I could see positives that, you know, we could move forward with. Um, and then... And what did they say to that? Well, there was... Ben was in the corner and he was sort of looked really stressed and red-faced and I was polite to him, but he, he, he was obviously feeling the pressure. Ironically, I in this piece, I didn't really feel under pressure. I thought, how absurd is this? I've gone from you know removing bees to compost bins to being in these Sydney offices at this long boardroom table um, with all these guys glaring at me. But the other thing was, no, in my article, so I knew the material better than anyone could, nearly photographically, every article, every comment under every article, the, the integrity and the depth to, to why I wrote in a certain way. And... 
Um, I, I realise now that they were testing me probably to see how I'd perform on the stand if it ever got there. Mm. So it was like a principal having a go at you, but this guy's not that much older than me. And um, he started questioning me about a few of my articles and how they were written and why they were wrong. And I, he stumbled a couple of words and I said, um, is, is that right? Can you repeat that? Jane, um, Sandy, and he said, oh, I said, I, do you, have you been briefed? Do you need to be a bit more time to be briefed? Because you made a real error there because I never wrote, you know, the, yeah. the way he explained it. And then I could see he backed out and they all got flustered and all started looking at each other. And then at one point I said, um, who's giving directions here? Because I thought I was getting sued by Ben McKee, but you're taking directions from someone else. And then he got flustered at that. And they got so flustered in this meeting that they said, all right, let's end this meeting. We have to adjourn it, go out. And then I said to my solicitor, did I do something wrong? He goes, no, that was really good. Um, so but I left that meeting thinking it was all over and done with. And then that night I got this document that I, they wanted me to sign. And it just seemed it was the most complex thing. And it had within it that I couldn't share some videos that I had under my, my belt. And I just thought, why is that video even come into this whole thing? Did you ever think you were going to get a knock on the door in the middle of the night? Well, I think um, I, I, I actually got told I was going to. Um, and Ben, ben McKee told me that he'd been offered from someone to to knock me off so that was and um, this is a fucking movie <laughs> well yeah and uh, um and you know in saying that i was out at, i did a b talk in a, a country town in queensland once and there was this really it was a nice guy had tattoos all over him he said i've been following your case what what do you reckon if one of the board members just went missing and i said i don't think that would be good at all <laughs> I, I i think that um you know i and i said i i i talked to ben on the phone like you know or even though he's the ceo it's it's it, that shouldn't you know no one should be talking that type of silly stuff but um you know i, I at the same time and i i like i don't know if i you know, your channel or your, whether I'm being rational or irrational. But there was a certain time I, I got a little bit scared and didn't want my um, son staying at my place and I, I would drive him around to his mum's house to stay. And I, my intuition at that point was thinking I knew what was going to happen and how effective I was going to be. It would have been a perfect time to knock me off at that point before I got too effective, yeah. so I sort of felt. But then... I thought once I'd got to this point, it would it would do it wouldn't do anyone any good because the word had already got out there. But in saying that, I had a private investigator out the front here, and um, and when I questioned someone who is, I said uh, who, about that private investigator, um, and and I know I had a private investigator because it all came through the court documents. The, the the stuff up they did, the private investigator said that I what house I owned. And they thought I owned my house, but it was rented. And had I owned my house, they would have had that threat of 
taking everything off me. Whereas, um, you know, in terms of being a writer and or a, in, a journalist, if, if you're going to be courageous, then it's probably really good not to have too many assets. Um, so, um, so anyway, the, this private investigator, um, you know, I, 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 I sort of thought oh, my life's an open book anyway. I've, I've sort of been open on, on social media and stuff. And, um, and so it really bothered me that the guy was sitting outside the house and drive off as soon as I walk out. Oh um, my but God, I was told that Woolworths paid for that private investigator. But um, that is just, um, you know, speculative um, whether they, they did or, or not. Um, but, yeah, so I, I had endured all of, um, you know, all of that. And you know, so we had this that boardroom meeting I sent this document to one of my mates who was a lawyer and he said, you do not sign that. There's no way you're signing it. Then I rang up another journalist and the other journalist said, I go, he goes, I go, I've got to fire my legal team. Do I do it tonight or do, do I do it in the morning? Because, and, he, and he gave me really good advice. And he said, if you do it now, you can just relax and go to court tomorrow. And then and represent yourself. Whereas you do it in the morning, you've got that awkward feeling that, and you'll be thinking about how to, you know, just explain to the either <laughs> the barrister that you're firing him. Um, so I just, you know, rang up the barrister and politely said I won't be needing your services anymore. And and at that point, um, you know, we we both moved on from there. And then I represented myself the next day, and I had you know about three bits of paper. And the other side, <laughs> I'm sure it was to intimidate me, had folders to the roof. And uh, people think being in a courtroom is intimidating. And I'd compare it to when I was a gardener and had to sort of whip a snip all day. And, and that was, I was more uncomfortable doing that all day than being in this. The thing I liked about being in the courtroom was everyone you get a turn to talk and they get a turn to talk and then the judge talks and you know it's all very civil and everyone can be really you know it's a really polite atmosphere um so you know i'm used to when i'm out with all my mates being hard to get a word in because a few of them are really loud but um so yeah i i, I enjoyed that and um i learned so much too because um in some of the judges that i came in front of there, there was a judge justice mccallum and she was um, just a brilliant woman. I watched her do three cases before my, mine was up and she had this photographic memory and she would be able to, you know, word for word pick out what people had said. And I just, uh, there's something about being around brilliant people that you can't help um, encapsulating something from them. Um, so I fired, um, I fired the, my legal team and represented myself and the... Um, the judge at this the is time, are you in the Supreme Court at this Supreme stage? Court, yeah. Sydney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the judge was Rothman, and he said, um, "I can see why you did this, Simon." And he and what he was alluding to, I believe, was that he knew how close um, the other guy's QC, Sandy Dawson, was to Kieran Smart, and that why. I, I might so he, he gave me some liberties and he said um, you know as a result of that I'm going to adjourn it and let you get new legal team and didn't really hassle me out for firing my lawyers the day before a trial 
And then um, he, but as a liberty to them, he made me take down all my articles, like nearly, you know, so many of them. Some of some, uh, for me, some of the articles I had to take down uh, didn't even, uh, you know, touch on the topics. They just wanted them taken down because they were helping my algorithm or well, that's how mm, I saw it. just flexing on you as well. Well, true. I bet they seem to be able to pick the ones that were lifting me up in search engines and, and Facebook. I, you know, I'm sure that came into it, but um, I was I, I, I was very up, upset that um, I had to take these articles down and the only thing I could, I, I was comparing it to at a time was like explaining it to my lawyer. It's like a musician having a song and you're saying you're not allowed to play that song anymore or or a book, or you're deleting history. It was, um, you know, it wasn't a nice feeling. But I've, then- got a, I've got a film that I made in the States that it hasn't seen the light of day in Australia yet. I understand the frustration of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and... So and- keep, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I guess that was fuel for me to write new articles, yeah. that, that fire um, of taking it down. But um, it, I, I hired a, a local lawyer at the time um, named Michael Moorhead. I became quite good friends with him. I sort of, I guess, half paid him in money and half paid him in bees and teaching him how to beekeep. Um, but he, he explained, like initially he explained to me that to, to run the case successfully I'd need at least 200 grand. Um, and then um, there's all sections of the case that you want to fight. And one of them was that it should have never been held in Sydney in the first place and it should have been in Melbourne. And he talked me, at first he talked me into going up and asking the court um, to change one of the amendments. And one of the things I, I wasn't allowed to say at the time was that they were bullying me and I thought that was an over overreach because, you know, anyway, so we, we, fought, we fought on those terms and then we actually, um, the, the judge decided because I was getting sued in Sydney and not in Melbourne and not in Brisbane that I, I, I won that element of it. And then, um, the, then she sort of verbally, um, in, in listening to her decision mentioned that if it was up, I don't know, I, well, my read of it was she would allow me to, to move it to Melbourne. So my lawyer actually at that time said, you know, we should settle this now. And um, there was terms I weren't happy with. So I went to, um, I, 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 well, I didn't fire him, he fired me. And I rep- represented myself in Sydney and um, again, and got the decision and we well first we won the bullying one so that was a great win but then I went back took it even further and um and we got it moved to Melbourne um but um with and so I don't know we're looking four years now or something this has gone on for and then um the but and then I represented myself in um in Melbourne and the the judge it didn't, didn't like me much, gave me a real spray. And he said, um, I'm only, you know, I'm, I want you to have a lawyer and come back here next time you meet me. And then... Can I just... Why? Because it's a really um, particular, sophisticated part of the law. And it, and this is for someone else who might be being sued. If you get the right type of judge, like I had this Justice McCallum in Sydney, um, she actually ended up, it was sort of felt like she became my lawyer 
and she um, obviously had to watch these cases the whole time that these other QCs are running. And she she knew the law better than anyone and she knew that there was so much overreach in the in the suppression of me and the importance of it that she was going to do everything in her power to to give me you know my right to to speak on these important issues um and whereas um the i've just lost it it's so important these issues though like it's the transparency of like what is going into our body yeah, yeah, you know, it and on, on in it's. I, don't know, I could really drill on that, but like, so yes, good for you. Keep going. Well, like, and, and for me, like, uh, one of the things that became apparent was that other beekeepers, I'm, I'm not, I don't know for sure, but may have been threatened in the past to shut their mouths, or I know they had. I'm not the first beekeeper that Capilano have sued, um, so. Um, it was just a really unique scenario that I was the one happy to take it on and um, I felt a real privilege to be able to be put in that position in a way. That one of the things... Um, so it's a real David and Goliath. Like it, keeps, it just keeps popping up in my head. I mean, mm. you know, like these guys are the fucking monsters of the world in the honey land and you're, you know... Yeah, well, you wouldn't... Standing like there a, with a slingshot. It, it seems absurd, doesn't it, that, you know, the Australian honey company that started from these really pure origins for, for beekeepers are actually suing a beekeeper. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of surreal thinking that the whole way through. Um, in between all of this, I got a, a call from a um, beekeeper and he said that Capilano open one day every year and you should come down and have a visit, see what it's like. and um, One day. Yeah, well, it was for a club meeting, a beekeeping club meeting, and um, and so I drove from um, you know, I drove to Maryborough, which is about two hours from Melbourne, I think, um, the home of where Capilano is, and uh, um, I didn't have my Save the Bees top on or anything, but I had a, a documentary filmmaker with me, and we get in there, and I've been in there for five minutes. Some guy goes, "I know who you are." and um and i'm here to help you and i go oh well the truck drivers have been calling me telling me how much chinese honey's here or imported honey is and so can you um take me i want to go see ibc's uh, these tanks they keep the honey in i want to see all these ibc's and and i said I'm, i actually know ben mckee and um, the ceo you call him you okay it because you've got two choices. I'm going to stand out the front and take a video or you're going to walk me through I'm going to take a video and I'm going to share it with the public either way. And he said, that doesn't sound very fair. And anyway, so... And yeah, yeah, keep so going, yeah. I, 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 um, while I'm waiting for him to work out whether what, what he's going to do, the poor guy seemed very frazzled. I, I walked um, I walked into the other section and there was a, a beekeeper there um, doing a demonstration on beekeeping for the people at this sort of market type scenario and um, he he pulls out this powdery stuff and he starts feeding it to the bees and I'm like what are you feeding the bees mate and he goes Chinese pollen he goes I don't know if it's any good for them or not 
but you know they've got nothing around here at the moment and so one, one of the things we were, we were disagreeing with was um, or, or I, I was in trouble for you was saying that there was different contaminants contaminants within the honey itself and then there's this guy feeding this stuff and I said well what's the other stuff he goes oh I think it's GMO soy and it's like you know, you've seen the way I beekeep is that they're, they're just taking things from nature and it's so pure and they're so healthy, the bees, and to see it done in this way. But I got the whole thing was on video with this guy saying, um, it's Chinese pollen, I don't know if it's anything good for them. And that, that went viral itself, that little clip. But then there was another video. So they, they can end up saying, no, we, we, we don't want you here and escorting me out of the place. And there's some beekeeper I met there um, yelling out, don't worry, Simon, we all hate these guys for importing honey. And, and he was a character that I ended up um, hanging out with in, in Byron Bay a few years later. Um, or, 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 or after that, and like he, he was able to shed some light about some really disappointing facts of the industry too. So I was, all these things were landing in my lap. Yeah. And so it was like when I, I take you back to earlier in the story where if you've got an idea that whole universe conspires for things to make it happen, it was like there was so much of that really eerie beautiful stuff happening you were on the scent that the universe was dropping little it was just it was like i was a passenger and the universe was just dropping these things and um and so um i got to you know outside the um got some da vinci code shit going on (laughs) well and i was out the front i made this video of saying um this is capilano honey the honey i grew up with they're meant to be for 500 beekeeping families but how's all this imported honey helping their families and did a, a, a talk like that and and that post that that was in the millions of me just standing out the front and and one of the things I was really frustrated with was that one got taken down so I ended up going you know filing a, a motion to to be able to put that one video up again and um and yeah it was interesting how that all laid out i think the argument to them was well we never forced him to take it down or something even though the the judge sort of said that i had to but it, it all got um it's you know it, it's it's disgustingly sort of complex but i guess what i've learnt in terms of the corporation suing someone was that you can constantly it's constantly a drain um for me mentally it wasn't too much of a drain but financially you know you're going to run out which is why from start to finish i think i had five different lawyers or something because all the lawyers they want to be on a retainer and then um one i'm 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 very particular i don't want my people the people funding me to to um, waste their funds um, so if there was any elements of it I could do myself, I was better off doing that. Even on court day, you need to pay, pay a lot more money. So if it's just a mention and there's no arguments to be had, you know, I may as well just do it myself. So that's, I, I did it in a real sort of shoestring budget. Um, although I did raise in the end, um, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars, but what would end up happening would be on the day before court, I would do a post like I'm still getting sued um, and can you help me out? And I remember the, the, there was a, the, I had one lawyer that wanted the $200,000 to run it properly. And when I put up that crowdfunding with the total is 200,000, it just didn't work at all. 
Um, and then um, when I, you know, things didn't work out with him and I was representing myself again, I said, I want a documentary filmmaker and me to go to Sydney. I'm raising two grand. And then I raised like 18 grand and it was mostly like $5, $10, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was that you'd spoke about before about something going viral, but when you do a crowdfunding on that court case and you're driving, you know, on the plane and you're hearing this beep, 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 beep. And for four days, it's just um, money coming in. It was a really special, unique feeling that I don't know if many people will ever feel um, in their lives, but it was um, to have that support. You can imagine it was like, you know I, I was so empowered and and if you think if it went the way the other way where they did bankrupt me and take anything i just sort of feel like i have people's support regardless um so um so that that happened um you know all like all the way through and then yeah, it was actually another guy um who um followed me to the court case when I when I was back in Melbourne he's, he's he was you know a really thorough nice guy called David um and David um had done some big court cases before I think he he was in a court case against Bolt um for one of the articles he did about Indigenous people or something but um David ended up um putting the excruciatingly amount of work in um and then yeah there there was an yeah so he there was a, there was a series of them at that point but there was um a friend jeremy pytel he he did this work but defamation wasn't his league and then dan precise who had a law firm and he tried to smooth things over but we couldn't get the settlement and then david took it on and david um I've never met like he seemed to be savantly clever to me and he also um, did a huge amount of work but uh, in the midst of all that happening when it looked like it may be about to sort of mediate or fizzle out uh, the the news dropped that a guy Robert Costa who is a food grower um, in in Melbourne he um, Costa's in Geelong yeah yeah so he, um, he he spent, I believe, you know, over $100,000 or, or more on getting a, a law firm in Sydney to, to do all the testing of the supermarket honeys. And it found that a lot of the supermarket honeys were adulterated. And then, um, you know, then we, we on the back of that thought we had some really good evidence to, to continue on with. Um, and so... Um, I, th- I think in the eyes of the public, there was total sort of redemption and not, not redemption, but, um, it was, they were already siding with me, but it was for them, you know, the, the, the last, you know, bit of evidence they needed was this third party evidence that was going all over the front page of all the major papers. That was interesting itself. The, the, um, Fairfax media contacted me and said, Oh, you know, this science has just come out and um, um, Coles has just pulled all the Alari off its shelf. Um, you know, we're going to do a story on you. You'll be on the front page of the paper. We're sending you a photographer around it right now. And then, um, and then it never happened. And then three days later, I was like, the story came out. I wrote back to the journalist and I said, you know, and I had screenshots of what he was writing to me. And, um, 
And I like, but at that time, I was just sort of revered, you know, relieved because there were people in, you know, like my mum and family members that thought that the whole thing was so stressful to them mm. that it was just a real relief that it it come out in the mainstream piece, the press, the stuff that I'd been going on for a, a long time. Other people were a bit annoyed as well that it seemed like my articles had been plagiarised in the major papers. Um, but for me, it was, you know, most of the, my material comes from somewhere as well, you know, and, and mixed around a bit. So, um, yeah, I, I was... Um, I, there was a famous John Lennon quote was, um, if you do something marvellous and you don't get credit for it, and think of the sun that comes up every morning. Um, it doesn't, you know, not, not many people appreciate that beauty. And, um, and so that was really in, uh, the attitude I had to that. Um, and then it, it, it was, so we were set for this trial. The trial was meant to go. It was so intense, you know, how you asked before, what were they doing it? It was so thick, the amount of things that they were actually stopping me to, to say in the, there's a, a word called imputations. Like, so one of these articles, you know, didn't even mention the CEO and a lot of these articles, but they were arguing that it was implied and it was imp- well, this article implies that. And so that's why you've got to be very careful. If you're ever going to sign one of these settlement deeds or something, you've just got to be really um, careful about, you know, that element of the implication you know what what's implied and and what's not implied so it's sort of yeah anyway um we we so we got to um i i very much at that point um thought it was going to be a complete waste of money to run a trial and it was going to be a waste of money for for their shareholders and for me um and we went into that summer um, David was overworked and and let me know that he um, he wasn't going to represent me anymore. Fuck. And and um, oh my god. And so yeah, no, and, and I actually I, f- I felt a little bit guilty about the amount of work people were actually doing uh, because I've you know for me it was my vision and I sort of another element that had happened to me during the course of it when I felt that one of my own lawyers was working behind my back in the wrong direction. I I spoke to this guy who plays chess a bit and he spoke about when you get to the best levels of chess, there's sometimes a move you can do where they get your queen but you're actually catching them by by letting them get your queen because you sort of worked out that it's, you know, you're going to balance things out and be in an advantage even though you lose your queen. He's using her as a lure yes. to set up the trap. Exactly. And so I thought losing could be doing that. So I thought if if you make me, if I lose this and lose everything, it's probably going to put more, you know, integrity uh, onto me or it's going to really reveal more corruption um, if, you know, something really unfair happens as a result of me trying to do the right thing. And, um, and so I'd sort of come to the conclusion at some point that the system was against me and I was going to lose anyway. Um, and, but I'd give it a good go. And then, um, but then the, the thing that happened, um, that probably 
we sorted things out to an extent was the bushfires and the beekeepers were just so highly impacted by that uh, both the big commercial ones and and the small beekeepers plus there's so many greater problems and that was another thing i i, I didn't feel right crowdfunding for the court case after that had happened because i started crowdfunding for, so this is not that long ago no so this uh, like if it was a trial it would have been you know, just after COVID was really locked down. So that would have even made things worse for a trial because um, I don't know what they would have done. But, um, yeah, the trial was booked for March and I think a week before or two weeks before it, we managed to settle things. But one of the, the things in terms of that made it um, worthwhile to settle, I guess, uh, is that the fires had... Um, been decimating and, and Hive and Wellness, the new Capilano brand, they agreed to, um, they did a fundraiser for their own beekeepers um, and I did a fundraiser for, for beekeepers as well. <clears throat> so it, it would be pretty silly to keep on fighting um, when so many bees and beekeepers have been suffering. And um, and so, yeah, we, we managed to, um, to sort things out and then, um, and... Yeah, since then, they sort of did an announcement through email that they weren't going to import honey anymore. And then recently, unfortunately, I can see that they they are selling a few more um, brands at the supermarket. There's there's one called Cloverdale that's owned by Hive and Wellness that um, beekeepers have an issue with. And Do they now after this mark on the jar? Well, I, I, um, I, I got sent a, a photo two days ago of a new product that's hit the Western Australian market called Sunny Flow Honey, and it has no country of origin. Um, this is like ships. Have you heard of Flag of Convenience ships? No. Flag of Convenience ships weren't allowed into Australian waters for a while, but they're ships that are untraceable. They're owned by a corporate company in one country. They're housed in another country, and they're their offices in a third country. So basically, you'll never find who owns it. And supposedly, at any one point there for a while, Osama bin Laden owned something like 20 of these ships. Now, these ships would be normal ships on any other day, but say you just decide one day of the year, I want to put this on this ship and put it here in another country, it would be untraceable to know who did that. Flag of convenience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, um, you just know from one, like, you know, quite often on the back of these packets will say 10% Australian ingredients and then one person wrote to me and said, well, there's actually too many different honey countries to put on the label. And then I thought, wow, God, what's happening? You know, obviously when I'm getting honey out of a hive, it's just from the one hive and it's, you know, like even blending two, two hives honey is probably unusual for me, yet alone bringing stuff in from Mexico, South America, China, mixing it all up, putting 10% of Australian stuff in it. The other big issue I had too was they were re-exporting the imported honey um, and that I thought was just disastrous and um, uh, there's, there is a monitoring body that says if buying you're at by buying Australian honey can be really risky um, because we're importing so much honey and re-exporting honey that we import um, you know it just seems ludicrous um, and uh, yeah I don't know someone else it's like 
put the drug analogy like they're, they're cutting it with with too many different things stepping on the honey yeah so no wonder you know people are pissed off like um so yeah so that's um that that, that i don't know if the, the fight's still over or, or not I, I imagine it will keep on going on forever until you know they they put the country of origin on but ultimately i think australia is in position where we should be banning imported honey because of the biosecurity risk so this one here says right cap capilano manuka active honey naturally bioactive australian honey yeah so so some of their so according to um capilano now or, or the guarantee that um that we've had in in recent times is that their um, Capilano branded honey will be 100% Australian honey, but their subsidiary brands may not be. And so my like issue, the Woolies one or the well, well, they 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 actually pulled the brand that I had the most trouble with off the shelf, and that was a Lowry honey. Um, so a Lowry honey was quite a popular one to see at the supermarkets, but now they've got another brand called Cloverdale honey and Cloverdale honey is imported. And, um, and, uh, I, I've got a, it's one thing I've been meaning to do, um, is go down to the supermarkets and just suss it out. But a journalist the other day contacted me and said, they've actually put Argentina on the packet of that. So... Um, they're actually naming it. And then um, there's also... So does that mean if they put Argentina, they'll stay out of your crosshairs? Um, oh, I think it's an improvement. Um, it, it, but, you know, I'm still really, really going to push by 100% Australian honey. And if you can, buy it direct of your beekeeper. Mm. Um, and then also Bega has entered the market um, as well. The cheese. Yeah, they've just entered the honey market and they've got a couple of Australia's biggest beekeepers and um, they call theirs purple hive honey. Um, and, yeah, you've got Beechworth there, but you've got some great choices. Um, there's a New Zealand company that started um, getting pretty big sp- space on the Woolworth shelves, and um, but that's got New Zealand written on it. What are they called? Uh, one's called Airborne. Um, they've got a few different. They've got a few different brands, and um, I've got lots of guys now. But the guy rang me up, and he um, and he actually wanted to help with the the bushfire fundraising last year. Um, but I, I I have to be consistent in you know I don't I, I don't want imported honey here. I don't think we need it here. And then um, I'm with you, man. Let's lock yeah. it down. Let's get let's make Australia. You know, well, we don't have varroa mite here. You know that that's one great reason why our honey shouldn't be tainted with the varroa mite chemicals that are all overseas. So, so we've got a unique, special product that is purer than anyone else's in the world. Um, so, you know, let's let's support that and and try to bring the honey price up. And, and try to get people used to spending $20 a kilo on honey, which with the amount of work bees put into it, um, yeah, it should be um, you, like, you know, that, that, that's, that's a really fair price, I think. I saw something recently. Now, uh, I'm just going to skew off here. Some lady, she was using bee stings. She was getting bees and stinging people. 
um, for beauty treatments. Yeah, they call it that Botox, I suppose. That's a nickname for it. Um, it. It's new. Well, no, what's really serious, and uh, like if I go back into um, some of the you know early readings of it, and on some of the more spiritual webs, the, the groups that I've been involved in, there has been claims that bee venom will actually has cured cancer and. Um, and there's theories that um, bee venom mm. was the first acupuncture. Mm. And there's also always been a correlation between the hum of the beehive and meditation. Mm. Um, and and the, I think they call it the Brahman breath in India, where or the which is a bee breath. And you put your fingers in your ears and you, you hum like a bee and you try to get the right pitch. And that's apparently healing. But the fascinating thing, and I've shared a few... Um, stories on beekeeping pages about bee venom therapy and there was one page that banned it they said this is um, terrible it's um it's it's oh, i don't know what like bad science or or in, in, anyway but last year it was found or, or recently big stories been that it will actually bee venoms being started to be used for breast treatment uh, breast cancer treatment or it kills breast cancer cells without hurting the human cells mm -hmm. and so this theory that the you know the um, mystics had that the bee venom was healing is actually quite healing what you probably saw it being used for was, it was a lady in america yeah lyme disease is a, that's it that yeah. was it and so or you've got all these Lyme disease patients that uh, can't get treatment and they're, you know, they're being sort of handballed to have a lifetime of suffering. And then this bee venom, and, and I've, I've, I have people personally that I've spoken to on the phone now um, who, who say that this bee venom has saved their life. Um, me personally, I, around that time where I told you that I was getting I was pretty low getting um, beehives out of compost bins and something turned in my life well earlier than that um, I was working with the beekeeper it was quite rough with bees and I had a really bad bee suit and I got um, a bee in my plumber's crack and I, the hive was just in a really stinging momentum at that stage and I opened my suit I took my suit off and and all the bees flew into my suit. I got stung about 50 times very early into my experience. But I experienced um, this and it, it probably felt um, this euphoric feeling. Did you swell um, up? I actually, um, th these dots appeared on my arms, but not just in one position, everywhere. It was like my blood was fizzing. <laughs> That's what it looked like. I said to the guy, call the ambulance. And um, and he... Um, he, 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 I think he went off to do that, but really, uh, if you get bit enough times, you can. I think you need like a thousand stings, a thousand stings will kill you, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's also it's very rare to for someone to die of a bee sting. I think it's you know, probably more than sharks, but um, it's about two people a year or something, I think, or maybe that's in Victoria, but generally, it's men, um, who are beekeepers themselves. And so it's um, over over time. Um, it, there's some beekeepers that 
you know the the, the venom stores over time, so they become allergic, uh, but they can't retire even though they're allergic because it's all they've ever known. So yeah. they continue to work despite being allergic. And you know, there a few incidences have been when the um, truck smashes and um, when they're carrying bees and and they get stung in that way, or they might have pre-existing heart conditions or something. But it's very rare that. Um, you know, children or, or, or will die of a bee sting. Um, but in this case, I, it, was, it was a bit of a worry and I had this most powerful euphoric feeling while it was happening. It was actually on the cusp of enjoy, enjoyable. <laughs> and then I, I put um, a homeopathic guy had said, eat the honey if this ever happens to you and rub it on your skin. And I did those two things and I, I was surprised. I sort of instantly came good. And then I went for a swim down the beach. But the, I woke up the next day we invigorated, like a cloud had left my body. And that's the similar stories I've heard for people with Lyme disease that have got it. And so you would call that sort of a flush rather than a dose. And I think these Lyme disease people, they start with sort of one or two to get their tolerance up. But in the end, they have, you know, 20 stings or something that really has an impact and that's what gets people over the line. There's one example of a woman that was in hospital with um, um, in an old person's home, even though she was in, in her late thirties, I think. And there was a swarm in a park in New York or something. She was in a wheelchair and the nurse had to run away because this angry bees or, you know, started stinging her and everyone around her and they just left the girl there <laughs> in a wheelchair. Saved yourself. And anyway, the bee venom saved her. She was so a similar story to mine where, where she woke up three and she's dedicated her life now to um, bee venom and bee venom products and the positive aspects to it. Uh, is she blonde? Is this the girl that I might have seen? Yeah, it could have been her. She's I, kind I, of attractive and she, she, then she was like... I, I, you, I think you would have seen her on the Netflix series called Unwell and it, I think it's episode six that's what i've seen and, um, all right yeah she's she's a lovely woman we've actually spoken a couple of times on the on the phone and stuff um the the, the big issue i guess this the, the one that doesn't feel quite right in this bee venom discussion is that we know that bees will die when they sting you okay yeah um but a, a big thing in africa now is um is collecting the bee venom without killing the bees and how they do that is they get a um, glass plate where they put um, electricity through the glass plate and the bees will land on it and get a slight electric shock and then they'll come back they'll tell the other bees in the colony and they'll all go and sting this this plate and then they scrape it off like it, it sort of looks like drugs when they're scraping it off um, I actually we we had one in, in the house for a while um, yeah, Emily who lived he uh, wanted to um, wanted to try one out, and, and I told her, you know, we're both not comfortable with the, the whole process now, but I did see it um, used, and um, what I found that it did was not only with a bee stinging it, but it, it would the shock probably made them um, poo, and so th- there was like a few little brown marks. So I thought, I don't know how you get a completely clean mix, but the other thing that really scared me about that is that you're getting, like, to get, you know, a gram or something, it must be 10,000 stings or something. And so knowing that a 1,000 stings will kill you if you left it on the table or something and a kid, 
you know, ended up putting it in their mouths or um, I, 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 it's just really dangerous to keep around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but for me, in, in my daily duties, um, I, I get stung, you can imagine, quite a few times. And, um, and I, yeah, I think for arthritis and things like that, it's, it's going to be really helpful. But I think... If you just my mum's got some arthritis. What what would? How is it helpful? Well, I I, I think we you know I'm 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 obviously not a medical expert. Come on, and, um, <laughs> but um, I think the blood flow to the area yeah. would be increased, and that's uh, just in that. I think um, I I think I, I guess it's some type of invasive treatment uh, where it's topical. Like it's quite amaz- amazing. That it it just responds and localizes to that area yeah. that you are stung. So um, I I think it, when you you're hurt in any way, your body generates healing thing. It might stimulate your that that healing mechanism within your um within your own system. So two two things I want to touch on just before. Um, I, some reason I have it in my mind that if everyone had a beehive in their back garden. I don't know why I've got this in. I don't know if you told me or someone else told me that we'd have a much healthier... Ecosystem? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, at the moment, we sort of run off a system where, you know, I know there's guys in Australia with, I think, over 50,000 hives amongst their small business or something. Well, not small business, big business. And I know, um, I don't know how it's going, but Hive and Wellness were in this situation where they wanted to actually start doing their own hives on a huge scale and um there's a one of the um early books i read on this uh, on beekeeping was um it was um um the shamanic way of the bee Uh, it's a great book simon buxton um have a have a read if you get a chance but they have this great quote in the book that rather than um, one person with a hundred thousand hives or fifty thousand hives. We need a hundred thousand different beekeepers. Yeah, and I think that I've I've pushed that the whole way. And um, and another great book. It was called Telling the Bees, which went back into the history of bees. Was there was times in Europe when that's what it was like, the times before sugar, and um, you know bees are actually one of the first safes that were ever kept. So people used to keep their jewelry in there and stuff. And because it was the only um it was the sweetness and it doesn't matter what primitive culture you you get nearly all of them say honey's their favorite food and so um and i think we'd all agree that it's it's superior to having white sugar and um and so yeah i guess people have been a bit of deprived by by not growing up in that way and having a beehive i i i i wouldn't feel right if i didn't but for me just this the connection to nature you get by just witnessing these creatures fly in and out it, it makes you feel as though the the environment is healthy um and that you're a, you're sort of a part of that and you're a part of nature um so that's it's funny that you say that because i feel that's sort of happening mm. and there's i think it was last year there was seven thousand new beekeepers and i think this year's been similar um, and I think COVID actually invoked more people to want to get into beekeeping. Um, and so I think it's a good thing. But there's this philosophy about um, the resources and whether you could have too many in an area. Um, 
and not enough that's trees been debated. Or... But I, I have this, I see this magical element of abundance with bees. Like that, the more you have of them, the more they'll be pollinating, and the more they'll be creating. But I guess the role is um, to to have more flowers being planted. Um, and then change our sort of notion to how we treat weeds because most of the weeds we 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 hate like dandelions and things and people get weed killer about it are actually um, that will um, that's really great food for bees and nutrition. Well, there's not really too many mistakes in nature, is there? No, they're not. But an interesting thing and um, and and maybe a confronting element to this discussion is that Australia has over two thousand indigenous bees, and there hasn't been too much research done into how much honeybees affect indigenous bees and and whether they compete and outcompete. Um, one scientist on the issue said there is evidence that some of these indigenous bees benefit out of the honeybee rustling up. The, the flower before the, the bee goes in there but there's um, honeybees wake up earlier and, and go to bed later than the indigenous bees and um, and then you've got um, areas where you know the um, the indigenous bees uh, um, and like national parks and things that should a honeybee species be in national parks and they were going to get kicked out of national parks um, in terms of commercial beekeepers going into national parks. But since the fires, um, they've decided to allow beekeepers to go in, back in. And that's also a hard debate um, because um, you, you would like to think that we could keep some areas of Australia pristine because the honeybees came from Europe. So some people think honeybees are indigenous, but but they're not indigenous. There's... Um there's a lot. Uh, there's uh, the, the, what are the bees that go out and uh, they they search and find food and water the, and oh well scout bees scout bees. Mm-hmm. So tell me, is this true? Like I love this if it is that the scout bee will come back after finding a dam, whatever water I don't know flower, and it'll get on a stage. No, I'm off topic. No, no, you're not. Yeah, I'm okay. letting you go here. Yeah, it'll get on a stage and it'll uh, do a, a dance. Yeah, so that's called the waggle dance, and um, and yeah, they come back and they um, they do this. They wiggle their butt and they really shake it hard and and the intensity. And everyone's just watching. It's like the theatre. Well, it's like it, it, it because I don't like. I'll actually show you outside soon. We'll try to find one doing the the, the waggle dance um, in the hive, but. It's, um, I think it's a vibrational thing. And so some of the other bees might not even be, be able to be watching. A lot of them do, but like there's 100,000 bees on a hive and all on different frames. But I think by shaking that same dance, we'll, the other ones will start, you know, copying the oh, same Oh, what dance. dance is it? What dance is it? Oh, it's this one. Well, it, it, there's so much um, communication within the dance itself. Because the figure, it's dancing, it's giving the direction of where the nectar is, what type of nectar it is, um, and um, so there's a lot of communication. Isn't this level of intelligence fucking mind-bending? Well, uh, yeah, and and um, they're a super organism, and, and one beautiful thing that I found working with this creature was even though there's so many, there's no boss yelling at the other bees saying, go and do this job, go they do it with sort of... Um, it, it's self-motivation and love that it's for the greater good 
Um, and, uh, and for me, who had probably struggled with how the human system was working, to see that we have got it wrong, because this other species, they're, they're so much more graceful in how they can get along, get on and do things. And, um, and so, um, yeah, that, that, that's, for me, it, it was like watching magic when I see the ability to communicate. And, um, and then the other thing is they're very good when they're together in their own hive, but they're not scared to go out by themselves and, and, um, and do things. And, and I'm not the first one who's thought of this way. I think uh, William Shakespeare said, um, the honeybee teaches humans how to run a, a, a structured system or, and then Shakespeare uh, said that. Yeah. And, um, uh, um, and then um, William Blake said, a bee has no time for sorrow. And so there, there's, there's all these, um, uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller, he also studied bees, all these, you know, really great philosophers. What did Buckminster Fuller have to say about them? Yeah, well, <laughs> that guy's he, awesome. Yeah, he's one of my favourites. And um, so he, he was explaining that uh, honeybee doesn't know that it's sustaining life on earth. It's just trying to feed its family. So if you have a focus you and, and, and stick to it, you may be doing all these other great things by fulfilling that one goal. And um, yeah, so you know, that, that's the crux of his, his paper on it. Um, and so you know, in terms of how I brought that into to my existence, well, you know, I, I just wanted to put pure honey on the supermarket at that stage, and then all these other great things. Another like really amazing thing that that's just so um, beautiful that that having the following I had enabled me to do was um, there was a spraying program ab- about to be done on this peninsula and I think there's one that's been going on in Barwon Heads for a long time um, but they were going to spray between Portsea and Rosebud to do an experiment on whether mosquitoes are spreading a bacteria or not and so what they were actually going to do is they were going to halve the area and then they were going to aim at killing all the bugs in half the area and leaving the bugs in the other half and then comparing whether there was a difference in people getting an ulcer or not. And so it wasn't even actually really being done to save people from getting the ulcer. It was an experiment to see if they could interfere with the process to prove that mosquitoes could carry this this, um, Borrelia ulcer bacteria. So they're going to kill the, what do you call the micro, what do you call it? The well, the ecosystem. Ecosystem. They're going to kill the ecosystem to get to prove something. And then the the, the scientists involved said, Simon, well, this would give us the ability to interfere with other places in the world. <laughs> They've got this. I was, and I was like, well, then you're going to be killing bees in the other um, area. You, you really do um, they not know that everything's connected? No, like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's shocked me. Like I, I've had a lot to do with studying, you know, the glyphosate and um, Monsanto and those court cases and. Um, you know the how, how people are getting cancer using that I've had farmers dying contacting me saying they can't speak out because they're scared they'll offend their friends who are still farming and still using it and do, do that, that I mean I don't want to slam farmers farmers is we, we you know we rely on them for food and all yeah but I remember working on a farm a while ago and one of the guys I was working for was like I was having to kill uh, burrs oh, yeah, you weeds, know weeds yeah, with yeah, the spray spray. Right. 
And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, you can drink this shit. Yeah. And by the end of the day, I was nearly vomiting. Well, yeah, I, like I had the same thing when I was a park ranger using it, but um, you just that's another your intuition just screaming that this stuff, if it's killing plants like this, it, it mustn't be right. Um, but anyway, so with that mosquito spraying they were doing here, thank God I, I got wind that it was going to happen because they were really sort of secretive. What they wanted to do was put a letter in everyone's letterbox and say, lock up your barbecues, bring your pets inside, tomorrow we're spraying. If you want to get out of it, contact us and you would have only had a few days to contact them um so it was um it, no one had consented to it but they to get out of it you would have to notify them on very short notice with so many holiday houses here they sort of must have thought well you know we're going to yeah. get away with it they actually did get away with it on four streets and there was one beekeeper in that street will Holmes, who lost hives went after the spraying um and so um, we were able to, the, the, the community, the beekeeping community around here particularly really stood up and I think I got 20,000 signatures um, within like three weeks for a, you know, a localised issue and then um, there was a local community meeting where I think 600 people came but there was more than 2,000 people outside and... Um, and Greg Hunt was there and a few other politicians and they ended up, you know, calling off the whole spraying program, which um, was just a really beautiful story of the community standing up and stopping some something terrible from happening. But it was just proof that if you don't keep an eye on things in that scenario, then they will go, you know, crazy things and stupid things will go on. But why does it feel like, not in just this scenario, in every scenario at the moment, that if we're not like having some vigilant eye out, that they will fucking put up an oil well out the back. You know, mm. like if you look at the thing that's happening in South Africa and the mining that's happening, and with the, you know, it's just like corporate greed has no limit. And <laughs> yeah, or the lobbying power of of the um, th- these fossil or traditional industries or pharmaceutical industries just so intense um and and that's the hard thing with with the bees you know you've got these um chemical companies like bayer that have infiltrated the university systems and the farming systems and it's all about yields and profits and um it's it's you know nothing about um protecting you know what about these indigenous bees there's not much money and funding that goes into indigenous bee research because the honeybees of what's in value so all the honeybees are getting all that money um so the and there's non-for-profits or pressure groups that are, are set up as from the pharmaceutical industry um that say that they're for you know bee welfare and um and then it's only in the fine print that you work out that they're being funded by these big agricultural chemical companies um so it's it's been really good for me or that that i can come from that not you know we were sort of built up by nothing but authenticity and um and you know we can be the voice for bees themselves rather than um you know one that's been you know has to align with 
with dodgy government stuff that's going on. You know, the, the, the cotton industry, I don't know, you, you would have seen a lot of that footage of the rivers dying with Murray Cod, 80 years old. Well, it's all connected. And um, I, I did go out Well, to the it. chemicals it takes to keep cotton, I think, alive, and then how much water. It's like yeah. the worst thing for the environment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, almonds are very similar. And, um, and then, yeah, there's, there looks like there's um, monoculture crops going in in the Northern Territory and people are really concerned there as well about, you know, these systems. You know, there's not much water in those places. Um, like for me, the solution's always been so beautiful and it's small-scale localised farming. You know, one guy in the street has a couple of hives and does the honey and other guys grow some fruit and veg and, and you all share your produce. And, um, and I, I see, I, I, I'm always looking at that side of things. It, it, that's this small world that I've created down here has those capabilities. Like nearly every client I have has that I look after the bees at their property and they've got really great veggie patches. And um, so I, I, I can see that. But realistically, I also realise that a lot of people live in the cities and, um, and you know, they need their food from somewhere. But in, in many ways, those areas are leading the way too. You've got that company, Rooftop Bees in Melbourne and Vanessa and, um, and Nick, they, they're good friends of mine and they've got all these great, venues where they've got veggie patches on roofs and green buildings and and so the bees they leave the rooftop and fly off into all the cityscapes find the trees that are flowering and then come back to the that's cool it's cool and 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 melbourne honey is some of the the nicest honey that you'll ever taste well they've got great parks in melbourne they do and and there's a variety of nutrition and and that's what you need for bees is that variety um, a lot of people think that their bees are going to do well out on the farm, but um, quite often in those agricultural areas, there's only grass, not enough. Well, yeah, particularly the, agri- the pesticides in agricultural areas, you know, can wipe out a colony quite easily. But even on, um, and even when there's a big eucalyptus, you know, area, that might only flower once every two years or one might one eucalyptus might only be really good for pollen and not for nectar so um you you need some sort of knowledge there but i found generally um because there's an area near me you know red hill which is completely different soils up there um my the bees that i've got up there don't produce an excess of honey but if i don't if i if i leave them with the honey they'll live comfortably but i'm not taking much honey Mm -hmm. whereas down here um you know some hives might get you know 40 kilos of honey a year in excess um so yeah there's a big difference to the extent now that people want hives up there i I sort of have to explain to them that they they might not get the honey that their friends have here because they'll ring each other and say why do i only get two jars and they get 40 jars you know um, but yeah, so that that insecticide thing's a big part of the cause. And what about this one? What about um, uh, that? Are, are they sensitive to radio waves from cell phone towers? And 
So the 5G... Um, yeah, I didn't want to say it. Their campaign has hit me up this year to help them. And there was a couple of posts I did share of, of, of theirs, but um, they came over here and gave me a brochure to give out and it had a fly, not a bee on it. And I said, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that summed up their movement, really. Um, so hold on, who approached you? 5G? Oh, the, the, the pressure group that was running the 5G campaign to to stop it um, on the Mornington Peninsula or... Oh, oh someone who's trying to block the 5G. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant 5G. Oh, no, 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 yeah. not the 5G itself. Yeah. But, um, you know, like, it, it, it's, it's a mistake and they've probably read some information about how... But even 3G, 4G, does it affect on... Um, like, I, I, I've done so many bees out of Telstra pits um, that it makes me think that the one, they're probably enjoying the warmth. But I have seen um, amazing footage of... Um, ants surrounding a phone and you the phone vibrates and then the the ants you know behave in a different way um so i i guess we're talking about frequencies and that more in, if, if you get a frequency intense enough it will burn you like a microwave does um so it's it's you'd hope no doubt that there's there's some type of influence um but this horror story that they're putting out that the bees are going to just all collapse because of the 5G. Like I, I, I consider the um, insecticide issue a little bit more intense, but then I also can see massive issues with the, that technology is going to bring in itself that we're seeing, you know, with the divide in America. And I, I watched that social dilemma story and where I think I've got a, a real good things through social media. I, I think that these companies have become a, a malevolent and trying to create divide between people. So you're engaged more. And, um, and so that's a worry. And then when you talk about- Just that, I did that brilliantly with Trump and COVID. Yeah, and um, and the the I don't know we, that movie The Terminator where the technology gets so um, strong that the machines take over type thing. Well, you know I, I don't know what effect that's going to have on insects when as as the um, our reliance on you know on that those frequencies. I mean I mean poor insects, but what's it going to do to us? Yeah, and the way we live, and our 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 social systems, you know, because it's all. But going back to um, um, to Tesla and his vision and his study into bees, um, he was saying that the eventually the um, whole world would become one mind and we'll be able to communicate. And this was in the thirties. He wrote this, and we'll eventually be able to communicate with anyone we want at any time we want and we'll, the earth will in essence become a super brain and it's you know for me it's it's really happening that standing on the shoulders of giants and um and um does he mean telepathically or does he mean well what's the difference no he said you could hold something on you oh, that see. could do yeah, it so right. he, he actually sounded yeah. like he predicted the phone well he elon, said you'll carry it in your, in your pocket elon's already talking about a chip well, yeah, but and I've listened to him talk about the chip, and um, it's you can't argue with him because if you're blind 
and it, this is how it's going to start off someone blind or someone who can't use a limb may be able to get this chip and then be able to see for the first time have better vision than other people have so it's going to start with the people who you know will need it the most which will be the um the, the, the you know people who with handicaps and then and it will change their lives but then it will probably end up giving them a competitive advantage and then it will get to an extent where if you don't have it you're going to be at a disadvantage and then we have become you know machine like um and and i guess we already are because so much of all the research i've done on bees has become Come pretty much, you know, a little bit on books, but mostly um, one that I, I love debates. I, I, I'm one of those people that um, um, even the the people that hate me the most, I'll, I'll jump into a den of, of people. There, there was a page dedicated to hating me, you know, from some, I guess it was Capilano supporters started it at one point, and I would just yeah, soak up all their insults thinking, they might tell me something about myself that I don't know and Achilles heel. And then when it came to hostile interviews, I've had one or two hostile interviews through the ABC. Um, and I was just prepared with every answer because I'd copped it so much online. Really? Yeah. There, there was, um, the ABC got stuck in there. Well, there, there was, uh, well, they seemed to be briefed on what I couldn't say in terms of, um, the, the, guidelines i was under for court orders um so so would you almost say that i had to re really think the way i'd answer the questions because if i answered it the way i wanted to directly i I would have um been under contempt of court Mm -hmm. so i had to really choose my my language like i think one of the they had a guy ring up and say i would have thought the abc would have been behind you um no, they like it, it was one one article that came out was so biased and it was really interesting because it, it, it teaches me how you can bias an article. Do you think they're on the take? Um, no, I, th- I think the reason why the ABC had something in for me was I was very um, um, effective in communicating how dangerous monoculture farming was, the chemicals involved. Like if you watch Landline, so much of that show, they've had Capilano on a hell of a lot. And they've had almond um, farmers on there a lot, and and they're this big monoculture, this pollination from the big commercial beekeeping, um, is is such a fabric of our food system here that no one wants to um, really dig up the 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 key part of that um, issue that I have is is this moving of hives spreading disease? Is can you go from uh, crop doused in chemicals and not take chemicals with the honey and so they they don't want to talk about topics like that um, and um, yeah in terms of the ABC article I, I, yeah, you, you spend two days talking to a journalist and that comes out a lot different than what's meant to be and then um, the, the um, journalist rang like text me and said the article's up and then I read the article and I was pretty pissed off about it, sort of said that I had no sort of depth to my allegations. And then um, 
And then they, but she said, read the comments under the articles and everyone was siding with me and said, oh, this, you know, bullshit. And, and there was so much support. Um, but what I did was I took half their article, took out all the propaganda in it and then re-released it on Save the Bees Australia. And I was looking at their traffic versus my traffic and I got more of reach than they did, which I found, found was pretty funny at the time. Um, so you took, you took what they did to you and did the same sort exactly. of thing. Yeah. So, like, some of the really negative things that have happened to me have really been great ways of teaching me. The other thing that happened at one stage... Did someone tell you how to do that, or did you just think that's... Well, I, I was sort of pioneering this way of doing things. I'm watching, you know, a few YouTube things, like a guy called Friendly Geordies. I don't know if you watch him on YouTube. What's his name? Friendly Geordies. No. Um, oh, he's, he's amazing at... Um, um, very articulate, really funny, but at out in corruption and how the media acts. And I, yeah, so. Oh, I'm going to look this guy up. It sounds great. Oh, yeah, he, you know, he, he's, um, yeah, like, it's, he, he's, he's brilliant at it and very effective. And, um, yeah, so he's definitely someone who's sort of pioneering in that realm. Um, and in many ways, I was pioneering in that realm. Like, I, if anyone's getting sued by a corporation, definitely contact me. I'll give them the keys to a template on how to survive that. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, for the thing for me in the past, if I was sued, I was just gone. But because of the crowdfunding mechanism that I could have that longevity of six years or whatever um, by just reaching out to my audience over that time. So it was, you know, it wasn't financially necessarily hurting me. It was, it, it, it gave the cause some more momentum to an extent. But, um, yeah, in terms of being set up for... Well, I think those big guys, sorry to cut you off, but they, they just look with the intent of smothering you that you will never be able to afford to get out of this. Oh, yeah, and you couldn't. Like, uh, you know, to, to if I didn't have the crowdfunding thing, I would have been wiped out really, really quickly. Like, I, I had to structure a defence. I had to pay for... Um, a um a barrister to write a defense for me and it cost me um that was um the barrister wheelahan and he uh, you know he did it at a, at a reduced cost of over twenty thousand dollars so that's just to they make a statement mm. of claim and then i've got a defense so um like your yeah, average joe is going to be in, in a lot of trouble and generally um you know they're like i would you know, advise everyone to, you know, avoid litigation as much as they can. Um, it, it doesn't benefit it, you know, anyone generally in the end. But in this case, I, I sort of tried to use it as my own sort of backfire. The sort. only other person I know, is, uh, aside you, who's gone to the Supreme Court, was taken by a big company. It was Volley, actually. Uh-huh. And they tried to smother them, but they didn't know that this guy's dad was a retired lawyer. And after looking at the papers for years, goes, I've found an angle, let's go. Yeah. And they won in the Supreme Court. But it took, like you, forever. And if he didn't have his dad that was retired, never would have worked. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really it's a, a, an ill system. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, that's definitely um, – yeah, that's the other thing in terms of talking a super brain. There was a lot of free people offering me advice along the way and um, – and it was amazing, you know, the advice they were getting to the extent that now I can write an article 
that will secure, you know, you use the word allegedly or something in, instead of sort of making it as a statement and you can um, get away with it. But, um, um, yeah, that, that was um, something that I think um, other corporations would be watching, thinking, fail, let's not do that, let's not do what they did there. Because, um, yeah, I think... Um, I think there was a famous story of um, um, who, who wrote Dorian Gray again, that um, great writer. Um, but anyway, he, he he got he was getting sued, and then um, and, or no, he started suing a paper, and then it all came out. His indiscretions came out because the paper investigated him. So it's very um, you you think you. You're suing something, someone else, but the microscope will come back onto you, which I think happened in in my case. The microscope went back onto them more than it did onto me. And how do you how do just in in closing, like how do you feel now? You've been through a five year. Um, you know, I just like, finished this I've, year, right? Hasn't hasn't our world gone? you really weird though like uh, the, the the fires were absolutely crushing for all involved so the start but, of the year we were covered in smoke mm. remember yeah yeah and and then you must have so well must've... that no, i had to go into to fundraising mode then and my my good friends really close beekeeping friends lost everything and um lost their apiaries and um I've, I've actually been visiting them this week to um see how they're all going and they're still really traumatized it was a little bit shattering seeing these people that i'm really close with that are um still suffering trauma um so we i went from there and visiting all the cicadas to um um and then to, to last year when the court case wound up um, I had to, you know, it was, it was a massive relief and I then was thinking, you know, I'd have a pretty normal year, but then COVID hit, but I'm in one of those special positions where I wanted to spend more time making a veggie patch and de- dealing with my bees and I could travel a little bit because I am a beekeeper. Um, and then, um, there's some surf breaks here that generally have a big crowd on them and they're within five k's of my house. So winter was like three mates out surfing. Um, you know, there was a long time offshore and good waves here. So I've, I've got a really fond memory of, um, sort of the COVID experience, which is, um, <laughs> which is probably, a, a, you know, a, a paradox to, um, yeah. the suffering that a lot of people were having. And I do, you know, feel for for um, a lot of those people. But it was also, I felt... Um, and still, like, I think America just had its worst day, like, the other day. It's crazy. Well, yeah, I feel so blessed to be in Australia now. Like, I remember I did, I've done some travelling in my life and I, I loved going to, to Europe and, um, and just soaking in that other people had a different way of looking at things. But... And then I had ambitions to sort of do some bee talks throughout Europe and um, I'd been invited to do that. But now I don't know if I'll ever, you know, I don't, that's so uncertain doing that. Um, but I've also definitely um, rejoice in being in the one spot. And yeah. like, um, I don't know, another saying, um, um, a, you know, a bee, um, don't... Um, don't wait for the chase the bee become a flower and let the bee come. Um, so what was that one? Um, 
and um, don't go go um, chasing things. You know, become if you become the flower, the bee will come. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, a better way of saying that. No, no, I really get it. For the first time in a long time, I've not moved much either, and strangely loved it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, I think that's um, what beekeeping really did for me was also become grounded because there's you see how grounded they are and yeah that that's you know really been beautiful for me is i feel that um anywhere i've placed a hive i sort of belong to that spot as well and so yeah that's another thing they definitely do is give you a belonging feeling i guess in the same way children do um so yeah that's really nice Mm. so I'm going to say thank you so much. Yeah, well, I, I think it's probably gone a bit longer than what we expected, but I, I, we, we could talk forever on this topic. I think yeah. so, and I think we both knew it was going to go for a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so right. I'm super stoked. Thanks. 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 Cheers. Okay, well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Simon Mulvaney. Um, what a great guy with a great cause um, you know, just all around good egg. Simon, if you're listening, thank you so much uh, for your time and being so hospitable. I really, really enjoyed coming over and hanging out, learning and seeing the bees and just feeling the vibration. Um, you know, it, it just is awesome. They just, there's something you can't describe, but there's a feeling that when you're around a really live um eco-culture or a culture or uh, it's just it feels good feels right um so a really good time so um thanks so much for that uh whoever you are out there in the wide world if you're still listening thank you so much um i hope this finds you well and smiling and uh until next time adios (laughs) 